Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I'm Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And today we are going to be talking to y'all about the Jedi and the Sith and how they apply to, in particular, physical wargaming. There's, there's some lessons here that can be applied to intellectual wargaming like Warhammer. But for the most part, a lot of this stuff applies to, to those of us who do the more physical aspects. So again, if you, if you guys who play Warhammer want to stick around and listen, you're more than welcome to. There's still some good stuff in here, but uh, just know that it's not entirely... Warhammer centric this time around. Uh, to to kind of give you guys a heads up, you'll probably hear that there's a whooshing sound in the background on my audio again. I've got an air filter going currently. Uh, both thumbs and I are going to be a little raspy of the throat because it is fire season in Montana. I don't know if any of like for those of you who aren't in Montana, what kind of fire seasons you have to deal with. But here, we live in a valley with like four or five entrances and it just tunnels all the smoke from like four different states all into this little valley. So it's like living in Mordor some parts of the year. <laughs> yeah, like right now, like I live in the what's called the South Hills. It's the, the foothills of a mountain toward the south of town. And uh, when I look across the valley, I'm accustomed to seeing a beautiful vista with beautiful mountains on the other side and being able to see trees and all that. Uh, I look over there and I'm pretty sure that this is the only mountain in Montana right now. Because this is the only one that I can see, anyways. Only possible answer. Uh, also, so that's why if we sound like we, you know, we're eight-pack-a-day smokers, just Edna, who's been smoking for 40 years, that's because our lungs are dying right now. Yeah. And, and again, why you hear the, the irritating whooshing sound in the back of my my audio again is, is for that again. So again, thank you for your patience. And for those of you who live in the Western United States, I'm sure you share our pain in this uh, because we're all on fire at the moment. But we'll get through this together and we'll, we'll start by uh, talking about some Jedi and Sith. But again, before, before we get into that, I've been doing a few Kill Team games against my wife uh, because she's uh, been open to the idea and I think taking uh, pity on me just a little bit because I can't see <laughs> uh, many other people. But uh, she's been ending up using my Space Marine forces. And for those of you who know much about Space Marines, you know they're pretty good. And I, I, I let her use them every time because she really likes the Space Marines. She's just kind of like of the, of the different uh, teams that she's seen, she's just kind of into those. And so I have let her use those. Well, and you told me last time that she likes to use as few models as possible so she has less things to think about. Space Marines is really going to be your go-to on that one. Yep, 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 especially with the, the points increases that they're going to be seeing across the board in 9th edition. Yeah, the, the Space Marines are a good go-to. And this particular fight, she was doing an all-intercessor uh, group. Like every single model in the, in the, uh, the kill team was an intercessor. And she, I Real was quick, using tell my... me what an intercessor is. So an intercessor is a troop choice for uh, space marines. They are a Primaris choice. So they're like a, a, a newer, faster, bulkier version of space marines. The super duper soldiers, yeah. Yep, yep. So they're just a, a nice super soldier with a gun, basically. And even though a space marine only is armed, typically, with a bolter of some sort, that does not mean that they are a pushover in combat because with their strength and with their uh, abilities, they can still cave in your headpiece with a nice uh, rifle butt to the head. So... They're, they're, yeah, even in melee, where they're not technically designed to be, they're still pretty good. So I took my orcs against this list, and I was using 
um, my, all my specialists were Burna Boys, and then all of my non-specialists were Commandos in order to get that extra negative one to hit if they're obscured. And I got my guys in, but I just was having a hard time getting past that three-up armor. As you probably know, orcs don't have a whole lot of armor pen when it comes to their, their just base-level dudes. And so trying to get past that three-up armor that the Space Marines had, especially with two wounds apiece, I mean, it was the, the, the rate of attrition was just too much for me to bear. So if any of you guys listening have an amazing orc kill team that you've been doing well with, especially uh, against Space Marines, I would, I would love to take a look at it. Please post it or, or send it to us or post it to the page or, or whatever you want to do with it. Tell us your secrets. Yeah, please, please tell us your secrets because my, my kill team list works very well against like Astra Militarum or Demons or, or other things like that that don't have a super high armor save, but it does not work well against I, I an actual orc list. Like if I've got my Stompa on the board, you know, I've got, it's a whole nother game. But uh, no, if you've got some secrets for, for defeating those pesky space marines, you got to let me know. And then the last thing I got is that I, I just picked up Dynasty Warriors 8. Again, I'm, I'm feeling the bite. <laughs> I'm, I'm wanting to get as, as much strategy in as I can, even, even though my ability to go out and do it is limited. I've been loving watching you do this, by the way. Just getting that out there. I've been going through, and uh, if you guys are interested, I might post them to the Instagram. But I've been going through and just making characters for, like, all of my friends in, in this, like, fantastic ancient Chinese mythology setting. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, and, I, and people have been getting a lot of joy out of it. Um, so I, I think I might kind of continue it for a while. And I might post those to the Instagram just for kicks. But yeah, it's, it's been fun. It's been a nice little outlet for my need for strategy and creativity. It lets you run a kingdom or, or like, there's a lot of different ways to play Dynasty Warriors 8. You know, you could be a, a trusted officer or you could betray your, your ruler and become the ruler yourself. Um, you can execute your opponents or you can release. There's a lot, of, a lot of choices to be had there. So it's it's just a fun way to kind of spend this downtime in between the stuff that I actually uh, would like to be doing at the moment. But Thumbs, Thumbs has been super busy himself. He's, he's going through the real-world process of getting into his own house. Yeah, I am moving... Within the next two months, I'll be moving. So I might be... By the time this episode comes out, I might be actively in the process of, like, carrying boxes. Uh, and it has really killed my time to do most things. Just because we're getting ready. Like, you know, last week we tore up the floor of the the bedroom and this week we'll hopefully be putting in the new floor like we're straight up renovating parts of our house uh so if i seem kind of frazzled and for the next couple weeks next couple episodes when i'm like well i haven't really done anything there bob um that's why uh and it'll give me so much more room to do more things which i'm super excited about no, it'll be a cool thing, and and you're not the only one, though. I'm sure plenty of our listeners are, are going through some real-world stuff, and they would uh, much be uh, preferring to be doing more wargaming at the moment. But, of course, 2020 has been one heck of a year, and it doesn't matter where you live in the in the nation or in the in the world at this point. It seems like all of us are equally suffering in this. And so, uh, again, we just got to try to keep our heads down, guys, and get through and, and survive it, I suppose, and, and get back to being able to do the things we love. Yeah, sort of. Uh, the closest I kind of got is, hopefully by the time this episode comes up, I've been doing some um, drawings, just trying to get back into drawing again. Uh, sketches of, right now, working on Roman soldiers, because, you know, they're in our next book. But uh, I, if you guys are interested, I'll pop some of those up on the Instagram and the Facebooks and the social medias, and I sound like I'm about 60 anytime I talk about social media. <laughs> 
But if that interests you, and it, I'm not promising, you know, perfect accuracy of what this looks like, but going from historical sources and giving you some ideas of some of the things that might be in some of the battles we're talking about. And here coming up pretty quick, and actually in terms of that, uh, we should be opening our Patreon before too long. And uh, at a certain level, you can get some of these prints uh, that Thumbs is going to be doing uh, of, the, of the, the soldiers and stuff that we're going to be having. Yeah, I wasn't sure how much we were going to be talking about that, so I was trying to be a little vague. But no, I think we can like, we can let the secret out a little bit. We're getting close. Uh, we will be releasing prints of every book that we're doing. So you know, when we start Vegetius, we'll do a print of a Roman soldier. Um, and I've been looking into like early Roman legionaries versus late Roman legionaries and like their weapon styles. And I'm going to be drawing bits of both. Uh, and I think I'll put up those practice pieces on our social media and then the actual print itself will just be available through the patreon for sure yeah and we'll have uh you know different different types of stickers we're going to be trying to do something different for every book um and for the three books that we've already done but we didn't have the patreon for eventually we're going to be going back and creating stuff for that as well that you can buy on a web store at some point but that will happen after i move Yes, yes. Again, we're not we are not promising any of this uh, super quick, but it is it definitely in our long term plans uh, as the uh, as real world allows. But yeah, apart from that, I I think we're about ready to talk about some Jedi and some Sith. What about you, Thomas? Oh, I'm so excited! Oh. Yeah, I'm stoked. Um, <laughs> I, I've been looking forward to this one. I'm, I'm we're still gonna. You may have noticed that there was a Klingon episode that was supposed to happen in this same idea. Uh, it did. It, it it kind of didn't. And then um, we've, we're kind of moving on to this. Uh, we still, for those of you who are massive Star Trek fans and kind of bummed out about us skipping over that, our intention oh, we'll is to get go back, back to, to that. Yeah, we're getting back to that eventually. But, uh, but we, wanted, we definitely wanted to do this between because we both really enjoyed, especially this Jedi book. Uh, we, we both drew a lot from it. And so we wanted to make sure that we got this out there because we, we both consider it to be fairly pivotal to our teaching process in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Uh, just on the Klingon one real fast... I, I've done a couple of podcasts now, and I have never had a podcast where there was no technical difficulty. So we're really sorry about that. But, you know, it happens. And, and this, this is our first year. We appreciate you guys being patient with us. By year four, we're going to be a streamlined machine. Don't you worry. I'm going to bring that up to you when year four, something goes wildly wrong and we lose an episode. But that's for <laughs> year four and not for right now. I am doing a whole bunch of... I called myself out. I'll deserve it. Yeah. I am doing so many hand motions while we're talking today, and Malark can see them, but uh, you guys can't, so just imagine it. Just they're everywhere. And that's also something to, eventually, especially when we're able to get together again, we're thinking about doing a live cast, but like right now when we're in separate places, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I, I wouldn't think it would be as, I, there's a lot of people who are doing it, and, and but like, I don't know, there's a lot of effort for me when I would just rather be doing it in the same room. I would rather do it in your studio than like, oh, look at my bedroom. Right. See how I haven't cleaned it enough recently. Um, but to the book, yes, I have been reading both of these books for years. Um, it's actually part of a series. I love books that are written from an in-universe perspective. Yeah, like, me, too. Uh, me too. Any kind of manuals and stuff. There's the Klingon one we talked about. You have that 40K one. Yep, but if it yep. wasn't like $500, I would own that 40K one. Yeah, limited uh, releases. The moment it went out of print, it just got so expensive. <laughs> um, but I have Star Wars, or I have Jedi, I have Sith, I have the Mandalorian one at this point, I've got the Empire one, the Republic one, and the Smuggler one. 
Yeah. Some of those are more useful than others, like, and better done in others. The Jedi and the Sith ones, I think, are definitely, like, the magnum opus of this run. I would definitely agree. And, and for any fan of the Star Wars universe, these are, are definitely good books to check out. Uh, again, we're going to be going through and extracting the parts that are useful for our process or for the martial arts that we do. But, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that we're not going to be talking about that, is, that would just be fun uh, to read if you, were, if, you, if you enjoy the mythos. It's great lore building stuff. Like if you enjoy the world of Star Wars, it's wonderful. It won't apply to this. One thing that I do love about these books is they have characters from the movies writing in the margins. Yeah. So like fun. there'll be a note from Luke here being like, oh, I agree with this or, oh, this doesn't work out for me. But Palpatine, Emperor Palpatine is also writing in all of these. And like his response is always just like, hey, 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 Jedi fools. That's why I murdered you all because you're weak. <laughs> and it just cracks me up every time. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's definitely the kid in class that needed to prove something, no doubt. I'll show you. But enough of the uh, of the pomp and the introduction. Let us get to the actual meat and potatoes and start with the Jedi path. So. Just by the nature of Star Wars, like they hint at this a few times, but uh, it is a it, it tends to be portrayed as very binary choices, light and dark, good and bad. Uh, and more often than not, and I think a theme of stuff that will come up a lot if you read this book and whether you agree with it or disagree with parts of it, is that the answer is often somewhere in between. So I'm going to say stuff like standardization versus individualization. And the answer is both are important for different reasons really and we can stress that like and, and and again like a big portion and this is something they kind of go over throughout the book but that i i think it's good to stress at the beginning is how much of buddhist philosophy has has become a part of this jedi mentality and this idea of the middle way the middle path and not doing anything to excess so i mean within the jedi you absolutely have people who get angry at certain things or they have people who get um are mad at certain things or or people who indulge in enjoyment or or in their uh glory of victory from time to time but the defining feature of the jedi is that they do these these things in moderation that they do not do them to excess and at the core of the jedi teaching i think that's that's one of the big one of the big things and when they go off balance, they things go really badly for them. Like we see uh, in Revenge of the Sith, where the Jedi have become so rigid and formulaic in the way they do things, it's a big part of the reason why they fall apart. They're, they're standing for this big monolith of tradition and these are how things are done that they lose the individual and then the individual who needed more than just the big monolith tears them apart really at the end of the day and not just that, I mean that's that's the most dramatic failing no doubt well, the fall of yes. Anakin to the Darth <laughs> but I mean in, in, in the same, same vein they lose ah- Ahsoka for the same reasons because they are so rigid and because they are, they are so uh, cold at times to their members, and they have forgotten that that peace and that love and that tranquility needs to exist within their order, not just being extended to the galaxy as a whole, that they drive Ahsoka out of the order as well. And she, I mean, she she doesn't fall as dramatically, she doesn't tear apart the universe or anything like that, but she, was, she would have been a very valuable member to have. This book is actually required reading for my squires. 
because it's a good intro book into like reading philosophy and like treatises because it's kind of goofy you know it's about the jedi uh but it still kind of teaches those lessons but one of my squires came up to me while they were reading it and they're like is it okay if i disagree with a lot of what they're saying I'm like yeah like a lot because a lot of their a lot of this book is very rigid of this happens then this happens or it used to do it this way but that was bad so it has to be done this way uh, and we're not going to talk about that too much in the episode because we're just taking the good stuff that we got. But I thought it was worth mentioning. You know, what is what is the value of tradition versus the value of new ideas and ways of doing things? And how do you balance those two things? Because they're both important. They're both happy important. Like the reason tradition exists uh, is not just because it's the way it's always been done, but they are, they are rituals, they are uh, activities that bind us together. They have meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so tradition serves multiple purposes, but in the same token, uh, we can see all over, all over, uh, not just fantasy, but all over the world where tradition fails to account for the new situations that may be arising in the world where tradition may not have predicted some of the issues uh, and problems that we're currently facing, whether it be in our community or whether it be in our, our fighting meta or whether it be in the world at large. And so I think that, again, uh, Thumbs brings up a really good point that all of us have a responsibility to use the Socratic method in all things. Question authority, question tradition. Just because you're questioning it doesn't mean it's not important or that it doesn't have value, but you're just trying to reassess, just trying to make sure that it still makes sense within the context of whatever's happening. I see this come up in uh, rules discussions a lot of like, oh man, we discussed this years ago. I'm like, well, if it was years ago, maybe it's time again. Even if I, you know, agree with like, no, we should not change this rule. I think it's really important to look at why we do things every couple of years, really in anything, but in Belagarth in particular, and go, is this still useful for us? Reassessment is, is very important. And again, like, and, and so that's one of the big weaknesses that both Thumbs and I saw with this book is that it doesn't give a whole lot of room for reassessment, for for deviating from these traditions when the situation may not be something that has been discussed or, or, or where the, where the prescribed method of dealing with it may not be successful. Uh, so yeah, we're, and so that's, that's kind of a, uh, yeah, our, our preface to going <laughs> through this is that we have uh, taken from it what we think is useful and, and kind of applied it and made it our own. If you can look past the rigidity and look at why they do these traditions, the, the reasons behind stuff, there is a lot of really valuable stuff in this book. Sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and one of the, the most important things, one of the, the core things to being a Jedi that I, that I think is one of those things that anybody can study and find wisdom in is the Jedi Code. Because this this code is kind of the the central tenets by which the Jedi live, and so if you haven't if you're not familiar with the Jedi code, if you haven't heard it, uh, this is what it is: there is no emotion, there is peace, there is no ignorance, there is knowledge, there is no passion, there is serenity, there is no chaos, there is harmony, there is no death, there is only the Force. This is a thing I kind of struggle with. Because I kind of live in a semi-permanent sort of chaos and pa passion. But it is, there is something very much too, like, uh, 
my life has become much better, even if I am a passionate, chaotic person, to have the, the ability to accept that things are going to happen and that I have to move with what's happening. I definitely dig that. Uh, for me, as somebody who, who practices meditation fairly frequently and, and who attempts to uh, cultivate a sense of calm within, I don't always succeed, mind you. There's a reason I meditate so frequently. It's because I, it's, it's not a lingering sensation. It, it needs to be practiced. But part of the reason for that is, is trying to shift yourself from one zone to another. So when I'm looking at this, this code, I'm looking at an idea of, of trying to actively shift yourself from being emotional to being peaceful, from being ignorant to being <clears throat> somebody who is knowledgeable, from being passionate to being serene. And so like the idea is when those things start to, to trip you up, because again, you, if you watch the show, like, or if you watch any of the things, it's not that these Jedi are beyond emotion. They still are human or, 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 or uh, mortal, Ish. let's say mortal, but they still, <laughs> they still suffer emotion. You know, they still suffer from ignorance on occasion. For, for the majority of the prequels, they had no idea who the big bad Sith was. They knew there was somebody amongst them who must have privy to uh, information from the highest levels, but they had no idea it was Palpatine. They were still ignorant. Even Yoda, with his wide-seeing uh, ability to, like, look into the Force, was completely blind. So even there, he was ignorant, but he attempted to gain knowledge. That's the idea. They recognized the ignorance, and then they moved to knowledge. Uh, and, of course, with Chaos... The world is chaotic. You can't deny that the world is occasionally chaotic and hard to live in. But the idea is that we're working towards harmony. And so that's what I see when I'm looking at this. Like I'm looking at the, the idea of, yes, in life there is emotion and there is ignorance and passion and chaos and death. But what we're trying to do is reframe those, reframe those things in our mind in order to make us more effective as people. Because this whole code is, is very well suited to the idea of being on the field. Because when you are on the field... You don't want to let emotion rule you. You want to be at peace within yourself. You don't want to let ignorance rule you. You want to know who you're against and where they are. You don't want to let passion rule you. Serenity should be dictating your actions. And, the, and even though the, the field may be in chaos, it is up to you as the fighter to try to perceive the harmony, to perceive the pattern behind that chaos. Yeah, it's not about perfection. It's about the struggle and tools to help you in the struggle. Right. Right, it's a journey. This, this whole idea is a journey from these negative states to something else. It's, it's very similar, actually, to a prayer to Ganesha um, that is the widely practiced in Hinduism that uh, is asking us to be moved from one state to another. It's a prayer to Ganesha that says, please uh, take these obstacles and remove them so that I can continue on your, my path. Take the darkness from me so that I can see the enlightenment. It's not, it's not a prayer asking to be delivered. It's a prayer saying, hey, meet me halfway. I want to be successful, but help me be successful. And that's kind of what we're looking at here. The Jedi do not assume that all of us are perfect beings. And so when I look at this, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing like a path. Again, it's not about getting there. It's about going there. Is there anything else you wanted to add on the, on the idea of this Jedi code? I know it's, it, we, we could probably talk about this all night if we truly chose to. You know, I'm really actually digging this. I've been very excited to do this. As I said, this is required reading for my squires. We're actually planning to finally sit down and, like, all of us discuss it as a group. And I got more out of this conversation than I have the previous, like, four or five times that I've read this book. Because it's too easy for me to be like, no, man, I'm totally passionate. And that's the thing I like about me. But it's balancing that passion. Um, so, no, I think that's, I think that's good. Word. 
Um, so the next thing that the book moves into is the Jedi ranking structure. And both Thumbs and I use this, but in, in kind of different ways. Um, it, they're similar in some ways, but, but a little bit different in others. So the way the Jedi do this is, first you're an initiate. This is before you've been chosen as a, as a particular student of anybody. You are part of the temple, and uh, you are learning the very basics to what you need to eventually use your, your abilities later on. A Padawan is somebody who has been accepted underneath a teacher and has begun to learn the formal education of becoming a Jedi Knight. A Jedi Knight is somebody who has, of course, achieved that rank, has more uh, ability to move throughout the, the galaxy, has more autonomy to, to kind of pick and choose missions and, and go where they think they're needed. And then a Master is somebody who has risen to a, a point of prominence in the Order, has, has a particular skill or has particular knowledge or wisdom that has distinguished them from their fellows in, in a, a way that is noteworthy. Oftentimes they've trained a Padawan up to the point of a knight. Right, right, right. And so for me, the way that this, the way that this works with the way I rank it is that an initiate is somebody that one of my apprentices takes on as a student. So um, while they're still my apprentice, in order to, to, become, to become a war master, they have to already have an initiate that they're beginning to train. They have to, because I, this is kind of a safety net in case they run into snags or in case they have problems teaching their student, they still have a mentor there who is able to kind of step in and help. Then for the Padawan, that's like a base level apprentice. I have accepted the person as my apprentice. They have begun, started, they've started doing their initial trials. So for me, this is a matter of reaching primal and great hunt, having a full kit constructed, being able to construct and use all the different weapon types. Like there's a whole list that is uh, applied to my quote-unquote Padawans, or first-level apprentices. And then at night, that is a second-level apprentice for me. So that's somebody who has passed all of their initial trials and is ready for more specific trials. So those initial trials are the same for everybody. Every, every apprentice I take on has the same initial trials. But once they complete those, they're going to have specific ones that I apply to them uh, in order to test their strengths and their weaknesses. Now, during this portion, during this quote-unquote knight or apprentice level two portion, this is when they will take on an initiate uh, to train and kind of uh, be, be working with as they're going through the process. And then a master would be at the level where Thumbs or I are at now, where somebody who has uh, achieved the rank, achieved the, tra the chain, and is now actively training other people in, in becoming uh, what we are, I guess. And so in order, again, in order to move from a knight to a master, um, there's very specific things that my apprentices will have to do. So for me, I split this up as like initiate, and then the Padawan knight are both like two different levels for my apprentices, and then a master, war master, knight, uh, mikut, dragoon, whatever you have you, that's the, that's the top. That's where we're at. Uh, but Thumbs looks at this a little bit differently. Uh, really similar, but a few slight things. Uh, initiate, I have a retainer or a page or uh, whatever your word for it was. It is just, they are often not, my squires, none of them have retainers. None of them have pages. And I don't currently think they ever will because I want this time for them to be more to focus on themselves. And because the night, the student teacher relationship doesn't just end once you get the chain. So I will still hopefully be there if they need a hand later on, but I want them focusing more on themselves and each other than rather a specific, you are my student. They should also be teaching everyone around them too. Anyways. Sure. Absolutely. But, uh, retainer. I had one squire. They weren't a retainer for very long because 
they were just ready, but they were a little uncertain about it, so we started out at a retainer position. That is someone who is almost ready to be a squire. And you know what? Actually, before we go further, I think this is a really important place to say this. A title, a squireship, a knighthood, a warmastership, anything, that in no way makes you a superior Belgrim to someone else. Nope. It's just a different way of going about the sport. Yep. So when I say they are almost ready to be a squire, that doesn't mean, like, anyone who's not a squire is at this level. But people who are interested in becoming squires, initiate is kind of getting to that point. Padawan itself is a squire, that's very simple. And then you have the, like, two levels of apprentice. Like, apprentice A, apprentice B. I just went to knight. You know, knight equals knight. That's very straightforward in my title, so... Uh, and then for master, I had it as someone who has knighted multiple squires. Someone who has gone through the process on both sides a couple of times, and they are really very experienced in what they are doing at that point. And and uh, before we go further, I want to say that I like the way that Thumbs looks at this. Like I, I think that that's a very realistic way of looking at it as well. I don't think that one of us is right or wrong in our interpretation here, and you might have a different interpretation at home of, of what these different levels might mean. They're, it's really just a way of organizing uh, the progression in your mind in some way. Yeah. One thing that I've loved about this podcast is it's a really good way for you and I to look at the places where you and I disagree on things and where we do agree on things and how often, even if I still don't agree with you, I can see the see the reasoning and it forces me to confront the things that I think a lot closer. Well, there's, there's a lot of roads, as Buddha said, as long as we're on the subject of Buddhism, uh, <laughs> there are many roads to the path of the, to the top of the mountain. Uh, many uh, many paths to the top of the mountain. And so I don't necessarily think that because the way I do things works for me, it has to work for everybody else. Like, if you've found a way that works for you, that's that's the way it needs to be done. I think that's such a crazy important thing to think about with knighthood and squireship and war masters. And I'm just going to keep saying knighthood and squireship, and <laughs> I, I'm not implying one's better than the other, uh, like other titles. It's just the tradition that you're a part of. Yes, Exactly. I am not the right knight for every squire. Not every squire is the right squire for me. That doesn't make them less valuable, less capable. It's just a matter of finding the right combination. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more um, later on in this in this section. A little ahead of myself, sorry. Um, when we uh, when we're talking about you know work, like when you're when you're trying to choose a student, there's a, there's a section for that a little bit later on. But um, yeah, there's a lot of good thoughts on that that are that are drawn up here. Now, moving on a little bit, um, in the book, there's an idea of a Jedi clan. So when you're an initiate in a Padawan, you join a clan within the, the temple. And so basically, within the, the context of Star Wars, um, let's throw in a Harry Potter reference. This would be your Gryffindor, Slytherin, Ravenclaw. Like, you're all a part of Hogwarts, but you're these different houses within Hogwarts. Our interpretation of this is the different units and and realms that you might be a part of, even though... Like for, for instance, I'm a member of Stygia, and I'm a member of the Dark Angels. That's my realm and my unit, specifically. I have a apprentice, Desi, who is a member of the Brotherhood of the Falcon, and who currently resides in Avalon. So we don't have the same quote-unquote clan, as it were. We have different symbols, different um, iconography that draw us together. But you're still part of the larger thing. Correct. Um, an another one for me here is... 
House Thumbly, which is me and my squires, and I have a few honorary members like you, who I haven't done as much with the honorary members. I'm still working on that part. Who are the uh, the very close parts? You know, I I push my squires very cl- strongly to be close with their fellow squire brothers and sisters, squire siblings. Uh, and I know some people who their squires, their path is very individualistic, and that's fine. But for me, I wanted them to have not just me to fall back on, but the other people who are going through the same thing. They're they're trying to deal with getting knighted by me, so they they have their own understanding that other people won't have. So House Thumbly is the first thing I thought of of glands, but units, realms, any a house, anything that really is going to tie you together to a group of people within Belagarth. Right. Right. And again, uh, and, the, and then again, we want to specifically mention that these symbols are shared symbols. So like the Horde symbol, for instance, that all Horde members wear, has a special significance to Horde members because of the emotion and the value that they have placed on it. Uh, the same thing with the Dark Angels. When I see the Omega, which is our symbol, anywhere, it fills me with a sense of pride. You know, I'm, I'm like, ah, as, that's that's my crew. Like I'm, I'm good with that. Or or any of the other. Like when I see Stygi, I wear Stygi on just about everything I own. Like I use the Lotus as a symbol, uh, even in things that aren't Belagarth, because I'm so fond of my realm of Stygia. But that's not my symbol. That's not your symbol. That's not anybody's symbol. Lotuses are everywhere. Uh, my Gelf Sash is one of my most precious items, but it's because I'm part of this larger community as opposed to like me. Right. Right. And so that's that's a very uh, important distinction to make here. And and it, and it kind of leads us into the pillars of the Jedi, these three central ideas um, which are crucial to the the teaching of a, of a Jedi. And so the that we're going to just we're going to I'm going to list what they are. We're going to kind of talk about what they are individually after that. So they are force, knowledge, and self-discipline. So outside of the uh, Star Wars universe, you might be like, okay, what is the force? And I'm not talking about like the gravitational force, the lesser or the minor nuclear forces or, or anything along those lines. We're talking No, that's about, just being pedantic. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about that which binds us together. In a more practical reason, it's the reason why we all go out on the field. I share the field with conservatives and liberals. I, serve, I share the field with Christians and Muslims and, and Jewish folks and atheists and people from all walks of life, people from all different countries, all different cultures. But the thing that binds us together, the thing that makes us all want to cooperate and go toward the same goals is that force. That's what, that's what draws us to the field together. All these different people who would normally probably have never met. To me, the force is, is that, is that thing which binds us. Yeah, um, I was a little more simple with it. I had as kind of the spirit or the soul uh, for the 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 things. It's basically the same, except I thought of it a little less, like specifically to Bell, of the the things that connect us to people around us. Word. Yeah, the the common struggles, the common yeah, like every every the thing that make us human, the thing that makes all of humanity one gigantic community. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that, that would be the force in this as well, if we were to think about it a little bit broader. Now, on the same concept of the force, we have the ideas of light side and dark side. And, and these are things that are kind of thrown around quite a bit. And uh, again, there's, there's a few different interpretations of them. But a light side, light side stuff are things that benefit other people. And dark side stuff are things that solely benefit you. We can also uh, justify this in emotional terms to say that the dark side would be 
uh, emotions that are consumed by things like guilt, remorse, fear, grief, sadness, depression. Um, yeah, all, all these things uh, could also be considered the dark side. Now, uh, that's not to say that people who suffer from depression or anxiety are permanent darksiders or anything ridiculous like that. No, 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 of course not. But it, it was a way that, with my own struggles with depression, that I could kind of look at it and be like, oh, that is almost like an outside force in some ways for me. Like, that's not, that's not me. That's someone who doesn't like me. Uh, and it, it, separating it a little bit, you know, the light side and the dark, made it a little easier for me to confront that. I'm battling the dark side, but I'm also, you know, I'm battling my own depression and anxiety. Now, it's worth it to note that even within the mythos itself, your accomplished Jedi still struggle with the dark side. I, and will occasionally still use dark side powers. Uh, I, I draw your attention to the beginning of Return of the Jedi, when Luke enters the the palace of Jabba the Hutt and proceeds to Straight force choke. Straight up chokes, dude. Just force chokes Gamorrean guards like they're, like they're going out of style. Those are those are living beings, and he is just force choke. That's a that's a dark side ability. But he's and and each of them do it in a way. Like I, I know Mace Windu uses dark side abilities on occasion. At one point. Uh, in the in the new movies, she uses she uses force lightning, and she's able to come back from it. Like just because the dark side exists does not mean it has to dominate you. Well, and Luke is actually a really great example of this. I know a lot of people don't like Luke Skywalker. I'm a big fan of him, and he can be a little whiny, but also, dude had some major trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but he becomes a Jedi when he sees himself facing the dark side of the force. And steps away from it when he could kill his father in anger, but chooses not to. And then later on, he fails again later, where he almost gives into darkness. And it's not that, like, I have beaten the dark side and now I am done. Now I am good. It's a it forever a struggle. Yeah. Constant battle. It is, it is looking at the dark side and stepping away from it. And then later again... Once again, you'll have to look at the dark side and step away from it. When you are beating problems, that doesn't mean they're done forever. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, like, you may you may conquer your ego on one aspect, but still be very prideful in another. Or you may struggle, uh, for instance, with greed and get it under control and then have a, a surge of it later on. Any any of them. Any, any uh, vice you can think of, just because you've conquered it once doesn't mean it's conquered for good. And and so this is a, uh, a challenge to all of us to remain vigilant against our inner darkness. Uh, it comes up with grief a lot, actually. Like, people being like, this is the first time since thing happened that I don't feel sad because of it. And I'm like, that's, that's great. You might feel sad again in the future. And that's okay. That does not make this moment any less important or significant or impactful. For sure. For sure. And so a lot of this feeds directly into this second pillar, which is knowledge. And so, of course, self-knowledge, which is something we've been talking about here, is very important. Knowing thyself. We've discussed that in, in the previous three books. That shouldn't be a surprise at this point. But it can also be found anywhere. Uh, you can find knowledge in other cultures. You can find it through studying history. You can find it through studying animals. One of the things that we do for the Great Hunt is that at a certain point, when you become a full-fledged hunter, 
you are to choose an animal that you focus on. We call it your totem animal. But the idea of it... It's a shrimp. I, I, and I had a fair de lance, which is a uh, type of snake that comes from Central America. But the idea of this isn't just to have an animal that you like that has become like your little, your little uh, mascot or something like that, but to encourage people to actually study the animal. Because uh, many of the best martial arts in the world came because somebody at one point was studying a praying mantis. And was like, huh, there's something to the way this animal moves and controls its prey. I'm going to try to mimic that the best I can with my human form. And then you've got, you know, praying mantis kung fu that eventually comes out of that. And so for like for me, I when I studied the snake, when you notice a snake, it starts out large, long. And then when it, it, it realizes it's in danger, it slowly draws back into itself. And this can often draw something closer to it, thinking that the snake is further away than it actually is. And then when the enemy or when the uh, opponent steps into that danger zone, you lash out suddenly with a kill shot. And, and so this whole idea is something that I do in my fighting. I start out with a very wide stance, you know, very extent of my, my arms and everything. And then if I've got an opponent that I, that I know I need to like really snake dance against, I guess, I'll, I'll draw my limbs, like my arms and my legs, closer together, closer to my body, drawing my opponent closer, and then when they're off foot or when they're within my danger zone and they don't realize it, I will fire off a nice high cross or a kidney wrap, hopefully to an unprepared opponent. My snake stance, as it were. See, mine's a little simpler. Uh, dress like a clown, hit like a truck. But um, hey, you got uh, it, it works. <laughs> different lessons from different critters. I'm sure somebody who studies an eagle is going to get totally different lessons than somebody who studied the mantis shrimp or the or the snake. But the point is that this knowledge to uh, to uh, like make your style better can be found anywhere. You have to be open and and seeking of knowledge everywhere. And of course, you know if you're a person who does kempo, it absolutely pays off to learn a little bit of jujitsu. Learn a bit, a little bit of judo, maybe a little bit of Muay Thai. Like all these things can add into what you're already doing. Uh, and it's the same thing in Bell. Even if you're not a Florentiner or somebody who uses two swords naturally, it helps to do it once or twice because then you start to realize not only the strengths of that style, but the weaknesses of it as well. Anytime someone's struggling against a style, oh man, I just don't know how to fight red. I'm like, well, time to pick one up. Like, best way to learn how to beat a style is to do it. Um, the second pillar of knowledge is the area that Malarkalark and I are the most comfortable. Like, of the three. We, we do <laughs> love our knowledge. I mean, I think we're both pretty capable fighters, too. But, uh, but yeah, knowledge is nice. Yes, but I mean, like, even out beyond the field, you and I just like learning things. We do. I mean, look at this podcast. Yeah, we do a show <laughs> about about learning obscure learning things, things and applying it to our <laughs> to our hobbies. Yeah, I do two shows about learning obscure things and teaching them. You know, that means that we also have to try really hard to make sure we're spending time in the other two pillars as well. Because it's about balance. You know, just because yeah. you know you, you're good at one doesn't mean you neglect the other two. We haven't mentioned balance in like five minutes, so I had to bring it back in there. Back like. to back. It's a very Jedi concept. <laughs> if we don't mention it every five minutes or so, I think we're, we're not doing it justice. We might forget. ...is self-discipline, and this is divided into three parts in of itself. And those three parts are meditation, combat, and construction. So let's talk about this meditation first. Meditation isn't just the one type. Most people, when they think of meditation, they think of this first one that we're going to talk about, which is empty meditation, where you try to empty yourself of all thought, of all emotion, and just be present in the moment. And this is also called void meditation. I'm actively terrible at it. Most people are. 
Most people are. This takes a <laughs> lot of practice to actually be able to do. Most most people are not able to quiet their minds to a, such a point that they can do this. I can't do it every single day. You know, there's times that I sit down to do an empty meditation and I'm like, nope, not happening today. I have way too much of my mind and it is not going anywhere. You know, I got to do a moving meditation or a rising meditation today because the, the empty is just not coming to me. Um, so even I've been meditating since the sixth grade. So it's been like, even I struggle with it too. So, so just because you're bad at empty meditation doesn't mean you shouldn't try it from time to time, but it, it's by no means the only way to engage in, in something that is good for both your mind, body, and soul. So again, empty meditation, much like what it sounds like sitting there cross-legged, attempting to, to empty yourself and connect with the world around you. The moving meditation is far more common and something that most people actually do. And this is a meditation where you're able to go through that same process of either uh, clearing your mind or, or tapping into the universal energy while you're doing something else. Um, and this can be anything. You can do it while gardening. You can do it while painting. You can do it while dancing, uh, while fighting. Uh, like the, the moving meditation is extremely common for me while I fight. Like I can enter this nice place of no mind. And it's really wonderful. Um, I know you get it while you're doing art. Yep, this is what part of the reason why crafting is as important to me as it is. Because, I mean, it's cool. Like, look at this cool thing I made. But there is something about the action of creation that is very calming to me. That is very focusing to me. Even if I'm bouncing all across the walls at the time while doing it, there is part of me that is just kind of getting to settle and focus and be enriched in a way that nothing else really does. And that's, that's really the important part there. Something to focus on. Something that, that kind of takes your mind off of the fact that you're trying to take your mind off of something. It's a nice little trick in order to, to, to trick yourself into relaxing, for sure. And, and this same idea applies to the idea of rising meditation. Now, within the book, um, the Jedi become so connected with the Force around them because they're focusing on their mantras and this sort of thing that they actually levitate off the ground. If you are capable of doing this, then you should be teaching this podcast, not me. If you're doing that, you're a spiritualist from the 19th century. Like, let's be honest. Here. Yeah, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but a rising meditation within the terms of things that are actually physically possible for us is a meditation that is focused on a type of principle or focused on an idea or on a specific outcome or something like this. So examples of a, of a rising meditation would be in most cultures when they pray, or when you're saying a mantra over and over again, trying to focus on it, if you pray the rosary as a Catholic, this is a rising meditation. I was going to say the Buddhist prayer, like, uh, what is it, uh, Om Ane Padme Um? Yep, yep. And I mean, a lot of a lot of Buddhist meditation is toward the empty side, but when they're like actively doing mantras and focusing on an idea, now sometimes the mantra is just there to give your, your body something to vocalize with and to make yourself breathe deeply. Um, but other times, like, when, again, when you're praying the rosary, you're supposed to be focusing on the individual virtues that are outlined within the, the five mysteries that you're studying. And so this can be a form of rising meditation as well. So, again, as an individual, you will find different ways to engage in empty, moving, and rising meditation. But these are all parts of self-discipline. And they're all really enriching to you as a person if you can manage to make them a part of your habits. Anything else on meditation real quick? That's pretty much it. Meditation is not my strong suit. I'm bad at it. I'm working on it. And that's, again, this is a path. It's not a, I'm working <laughs> on it too. I've been doing it since the sixth grade and I'm still working on it too. So uh, we're all walking the path together. 
So the next thing, it's kind of out of order, but the next thing I want to talk about is the construction. So this is, within the, the vein of Star Wars, it's the construction of your own lightsaber. But for us, this would be construction of any of your weapons or garb. And it does mean more. It means more, like, it, it, I'm, I'm being a little bit of a hypocrite here because I often these days will buy my garb or buy my weapons from other people because I recognize that their craftsmanship is far better than mine and I want to actually look good. But that doesn't mean that I don't have it. I've got, I've got several kits of garb that I made myself. I've got a lot of weapons, most of them broken at this point, that I made myself. And so, and, and, and the process, knowing how to do it, is a crucial part of, of course, being an apprentice or a squire or anything like that. But I think it's also an important part of being any uh, participant in, in a physical war game. One of the best ways that I have found to keep someone is not just make them a weapon. Like, because there's a lot of people... And I've done this before, too. Been like, here, I made this, take it, you can have it, whatever. And people will either become super attached to it, or they'll go, man, they don't really care about it too much, so it probably doesn't matter too much. But if I sit them down, and they make their weapon, and I they make it to my exact standards, and I'm like, okay, now do this. Okay, now do this. Now here, let me help you with this. They have an attachment to that thing now. I had a core that I used for 14 years. It stopped being a useful core long before that, but I had built such an attachment, the handle was so perfectly gripped to my hand, I will never make a more comfortable handle. You've talked about your your beat stick that you used to have. Mm -hmm. we, I called it my murder stick. It was incredibly top-heavy. It would wreck my spine to use it now, but it was my baby. I helped you make it. It wrecked your spine back then, and you just didn't care. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I helped you make it. I'm I'm equally culpable. But you build this attachment to things. Uh, my squire, Yui, who, as my first squire, gets brought up a lot in a lot of these lessons for me. Because I've experienced it more with them. They hadn't really fought before they became a squire for various medical reasons. And one of the things of squireship was, you're going to learn to fight. You're going to sit down. You're going to make your weapon. And that moment of sitting down and constructing together was a very powerful moment of becoming my first squire. For sure. No, I, 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 um, one of the last things I did with Vallis before I left Missoula to go to Nashville, um, I was still his apprentice at the time, but we were doing a long distance one after that, was we got together to build some armor for me. And while he had the tools and he had the know-how and all that, I did all the cutting and all of the uh, drilling of the holes and lacing myself. And um, while I don't wear those bracers anymore because they are not big enough for my forearms, it was still nice to have. It was still nice to have something that I had made myself. And you absolutely do have a... It's a different kind of attachment. And they talk about it in these books, too. They talk about how if a Jedi or a Sith loses their lightsaber, it's like losing a limb. Well, and even beyond just like the Master Apprentice thing, you and I made armor together. And you keep listing it as the armor I made you. But you were heavily involved in the construction process. And it's given you a very strong attachment to that armor that you would not have had if I had just been like, here, this is yours now. Yeah, I love that armor. I mean, I, I find any excuse I can to wear it. Anymore, I occasionally will just uh, kind of prance around the house <laughs> wearing my armor for, for no other reason than just to be wearing my armor. I'm sure my neighbors are looking over thinking I'm insane. And yeah, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it like it does. It, it like it, it fills me with a I stand straighter when I wear my armor. I. I speak differently when I wear it. it, it it's, uh, yeah, it's it, it's imbued, as it were. And not just because it's mine, but because it was something that you and I made together. Yeah, it's a it's an important thing. 
Yeah. So construction. Construction is a very important part of anybody's path, uh, but especially for a Jedi or, or an apprentice or a, or a squire. And so the last thing we're going to talk about, and this is one we're going to go into a lot more detail on, is the combat portion. And this is something I'm sure you've all been waiting for. You've been very patient, waiting 55 minutes for the combat portion of this show. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a, such a long episode. <laughs> well, how could it not be? And, and this, is, this is pretty good. So there's actually some different uh, styles and some different forms, uh, even some different, what they call a velocity, which is actually what we would refer to as a form or a kata in here. And they're all pretty good, and, but they're kind of broken up. And so we're going to talk about some, and we're, we're still going to follow the spirit and direction of the book, but there's going to end up being seven of these combat styles that we end up talking about. Um, well, eight if you count form zero, but uh, it's not really a combat style. If it was our choice we would just do all of these in one go and move along. But the book is has them separated into three different sections. So if you're like, hey, wait, where'd it go? That's where they went. We will get to them. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So the first one, and this one's pretty self-explanatory, is Form Zero. It's finding us a, a peaceful solution to the conflict. The, the best way to win a fight is not to fight at all. And in terms of like real life, this is absolutely true. If you can resolve a conflict without actually fighting, you have won a greater victory than you would have if you started throwing punches or whatever. However, uh, in a sport like Belagarth or other physical wargaming like that, uh, the whole point of it is to be in conflict. So let's say for the, the sake of example that uh, in every single scenario you've been in, Form Zero did not work. So uh, we're, we're, that's what we're going to say about that one. But again, this one's important. I think, I think all of us need to be peacemakers. I think all of us within, especially those of us who are, who are trying to be worthy of a title, need to be peacemakers within our community and not seek out conflict where it isn't necessary. Form zero is really important when you're not on the field. And I know it's something that you and I have kind of been struggling with a little bit lately. And we've been talking to each other about it because everything's really high stress it's sometimes easier to pick fights that you don't need to make. Yep. And that the Form Zero is learning not to do that. And it can be on the internet or off the internet. I mean, you and I, you've been my friend for over half my life now. Even just today, we had to, like, stop and be like, are we about to argue? Nope, nope, we're good. Okay. Form Zero. Form Zero. Seek uh, a peaceful solution. But assuming that Form Zero does not work, or that you are in a combat sport where you are supposed to be fighting. <laughs> Form 1. I will win this tournament by not fighting. <laughs> if somebody did that, I would be so impressed. I would be I'd very be so, impressed. That'd be so cool. But Form 1, also known as Shicho, is the determination form or the way of the Sarlacc. And this one uh, teaches the very basic moves. So the very basic moves of attack and parry with your lightsaber are covered here under Form 1. Uh, it wants you to focus on the target zones, uh, which the Jedi use, which are just head, left side, right side, and legs. Uh, those of us in Belagarth or Dagger here or that sort of thing, we don't use headshots in our games. Just swap to torso. Uh, swap to torso. Um, if you are a SCA person, you are going to be just fine uh, throwing shots at heads, so... Uh, continue ringing your buddy's bell. But uh, <laughs> for those of us who don't do that, uh, the head is kind of eliminated. We might think about the upper torso instead as, as the target zone there. Uh, the mark of contact that they talk about in this part of the book is shim, which is a disarming strike to the hand. We discourage hand strikes in Belagarth simply because we want our buddies to be able to continue fighting and we don't want to break each other's knuckles on purpose. Do they happen on occasion on yeah, accident? Yeah, those are the breakable bits. Yeah, it happens on occasion, on accident for sure, but we try not to hit each other in the hands. Uh, that being said, if you are in an actual fight, please 
aim for your opponent's hands. One of the best ways that you can win a fight, especially in a way that isn't overly violent, is to just make your opponent drop what they're holding. So if they've got a knife or whatever, and you can and you can make them drop it, that's not a bad thing. That's you you suddenly don't have to face a knife, which is good. So yeah, again, that's a marker contact that we don't necessarily use, but they talk about here in the book. Uh, and then the velocity, which is the which is like a kata or a, like a moving form here is actually kind of useful. And I actually have been practicing this a couple of times. I might even include this in the video when it comes out because uh, it's not bad. And it's it's really easy. The first strike is on your dominant side. So if I'm left-handed, my first strike is left side. Second strike, I'm doing offside. the again. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, he's over there miming. Second strike is offside. So you're, for me, that's, that's swinging across from the right. Uh, followed up by a center mass stab, a leg sweep down to a kneeling block, and then a kneeling strike of some sort, whether it's a stab or a swing at your opponent's knees. And and what I really like about this form, more than any of the actual movements, uh, like in terms of defense, is the emphasis on practicing a kneeling block. I cannot tell you how many people I have killed simply because I took their leg. Now, again, within Belagarth, um, we have a, a two-limb rule where you can have two limbs, quote-unquote, hacked off, and, uh, and that equals a death. And so if you are able to get somebody's leg... And then as they're dropping to the ground, they're sitting there thinking about dropping to the ground and they're not thinking about blocking, you follow it up with a torso shot or an arm shot, um, you've killed your opponent. And you only killed them because you, because you took a leg, because they got distracted. And so what I like about this form is that it has you in the mindset of keeping your defense up while you're dropping to the ground. That moment of hesitation while you're learning to take the shot and like figuring stuff out is the easiest ways to get a kill. Absolutely. It's something we all had to learn past. I had to learn past it. You know, I, I got blasted a few times and was like, I need to be quicker about this and I need to keep my defense up when I'm dropping. I'm sure you uh, had to learn this the hard way too. Almost all of us do. I'm at like 17 years and every once in a while I'll get hit in an arm and, or a leg and be like, what do I do now? <laughs> oh, right. And then like, I'm dead. Um, yep. Just sometimes the brain fritzes. Yep. Form one overall is kind of the basics that we should be teaching all Bellagram. This is the general information that everyone needs to know. How do you grip your weapon? How do you stand? And then how do you throw a basic, basic block. strike? Basic blocks. Yeah. Deflecting and dodging is also in this section. So uh, for us, of course, javelins are a constant presence on our field. Knowing how to deflect and dodge javelins is a good idea. Knowing how to dodge uh, arrows and you know deflect them with a shield is very useful information as well. So all of these skills are practiced as a part of what is called the, the Form 1 or Shicho. And no matter how good you get, it's sometimes good just to go back to these. Just I practice the basics every day. Again, we're going to be getting these uh, these twelve shot videos out to you at, at some point. Again, it's it's twenty twenty, so knock on wood. Hopefully, it'll be here before twenty twenty one. But uh, like right now, the, the thumbs offered today was like I could drop off one of the my lightsabers, and you can do the show your, the, the 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 video now without the one you ordered. And I was like, yeah, it'd be great if, if we weren't living in Mordor at the moment and i could spend more than five <laughs> seconds outside without my skin being on fire so it would look super cool with the like gas mask that you wear though so it, just it would out there. it would and i was planning on wearing the mask regardless i just don't want to have to need it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so that's also a part of this like any of your forms any of your if your your like your calisthenics and stuff that you do to stay in shape in order to be a better fighter i think that would also kind of fall into this too these are your this is your basics these are your absolute basics. And again, you should be practicing your basics all the time. It doesn't matter how good a fighter you are, how, you, how long you've been in the sport. Everybody can benefit from going back and practicing your basics. So we're going to take a break from forms for a second. We've got form one and form zero there. 
And then we're going to talk about uh, a little bit uh, the idea of these initiate trials and attire. Because while within uh, like Belagarth and Dagon, that sort of thing, we don't necessarily have formalized initiate trials to become an initiate or to come in uh, or, or to prove you're ready, there are things that we do as individuals to prove that we're ready to become a squire or to become an apprentice. These things can include stuff like uh, running events, uh, being a realm leader or a unit leader. Basic knowledge in doing things like sewing or crafting. Uh, of course, combat prowess is absolutely taken into account here. A lot of the times that's how you're going to be noticed most of the time is if you're a, a good fighter and you've got your, your basics and that sort of thing up. So these are ways to get noticed. If you're wanting to become a, 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 a war master or a knight and you want to become a student... Our initiate trials, again, are not super formalized, but they're just, you want to find ways to make your, you stand out. You want to make sure that your talents get showcased so that you can get the best selection you can. Um, and I think it's noteworthy here that you don't have to be good at all of these things when you first start. No. You know, I've got, Yui is a better sewer, seamstress, seamster, Seam, I don't know. Seamster? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Like sewer. a teamster, but for sewing. Sewer. Uh, sewer. Um, then I am, before we even started, another one of my squires cannot sew to save his life. But he's learning. Right, right. And he had other skills and other things that showed me that that's okay. Like, we don't expect you to know everything when you start. Otherwise, what would be the point? But it, it's showing that you have reached a level where you're able to, uh, to learn some of these more advanced things. And when I went into my apprentice, you know, the, the list that uh, Valis had in terms of crafting and that sort of thing, I was woefully, that's where I had to make up the most, uh, was, to, was to make sure that I knew how to sew and knew how to make weapons and all that sort of thing, because that's where my skills were lacking. He also had a reading list. And I laughed when I saw the reading list because they were all books that I had read, you know, at least five years earlier when I was wanting to figure this stuff out before. And so in that particular way, I was way ahead. I, he had nothing to teach me in terms of scholasticism because like Yui is for you in terms of sewing, I was already leagues ahead of where he was at that particular point. However, I had a lot to learn from him when it came to realm management, uh, dealing with people, crafting things. Uh, all those sorts of things were the th uh, and aggressive shield work. Oh my gosh, I I, I did. Oh, I, he's so good at that. He's the only reason I have aggressive shield work. I swear it. Oh my god, I miss you so much, Valis. <laughs> Come, um. Come back. <laughs> it's it's real important, and it's okay to not be good at everything. But you will eventually become competent at most things, at least in Belagarth. That's the hope. That's the hope. It should be a good goal for everybody, for sure. It's at the same time, I think this is a good place to mention, that it is important to remember that it is not... It is not just like a list and then you're done. You know, build ten swords and make this armor and make six kinds of tunics and then you're ready. Those are things that you should know how to do, but it's not your... It doesn't dictate that you are ready. Like we were talking about before with the idea of the Padawan and the Knight... A lot of that stuff, a lot of those, those these basic things we're talking about would be my apprentice level one. Now, the apprentice level two is, again, being being challenged personally in, in ways that, that stretch your flaws and your strengths and, and, and hopefully make them apparent to you so that you can work on your weaknesses and highlight your, your strengths. Also, in the same ideas is that of attire. Like, when, once you become a squire in particular, there is a, a formalized set of attire 
that you are expected to wear. Just much like a Padawan would be, like any Padawan would be recognizable within the Star Wars universe because of their attire, the vast majority of squires wear a white tabard in order to designate that they are what they are. Within the Warmaster tradition, we don't do this. Literally a line in this book is, uh, your uniform defines you. And on the squire bit real quick, squires are forced, not forced, but are generally forced to wear a thing. I immediately said forced again. Uh, <laughs> to, to wear a thing, a white tabard, a white hood, a, a squire piece that makes them stick out like a sore thumb in a way that knights generally aren't. I have my belt. I have my chain. I don't... It, it is super easy to not notice those things in a way that I automatically notice a squire tabard. And one of the things that we're talking about with my squires is why why do we do that to people? What is it worth? What is What are you doing? The, the reason why we do these things, again, I'm not a knight. I can't speak specifically as to why it's it's necessarily done, but my theory would be that um, it's supposed to show the world that you are on the path and that you are a person to come to for for that for either information or to help along the way or if you or if you need help like if you're a realm uh, leader or, if, or an event coordinator and you're sitting there and you need a, a couple extra pairs of hands wearing that tabard is kind of like wearing a hi my name is so and so what ask me anything sort of badge at, at work it, it shows your willingness to serve in that way it puts you out there in a way that you otherwise would not be i don't require my squires to always wear their tabards or hoods or whatever i'm just going to keep using tabards it's faster but they do have to wear them for important situations you know the stuff where it's, and they do have my symbol and a squire like on a white belt flag that's generally pretty big so they are always showing off i am doing this thing even if they're owning their own personalization and one thing i do is i don't require it to be a classic standard white tabard like i had you know i just did the most basic tabard when i did it um one of my squires has two of them basically have a vest one made himself a tabard and as he's learning to sew he's attempting like a hood now uh i think I like the idea of being allowed to personalize it while still showing that you're a squire. Because we're not one-size-fits-all. So you can tell the same message while still being you. And I think part of this comes from my deep love of superheroes. We're not all... They're not... You know, the Avengers aren't all wearing the same uniform. Or the X-Men, who are more likely to have a uniform. Like, matching attire. They're not all wearing the same personalized, or not uh, in, not individualized, the, the, the same uniform thing, but they still have the things that tie them together as this is clearly an X-Man, or in this case, this is clearly a Jedi. And within the Warmaster tradition, we don't uh, denote our apprentices quite as obviously. A lot of us will ask our apprentices to wear a, a belt flag with our symbol on it, so that if somebody sees that, they know that that person is associated with us. Uh, in kind of the same way, but it's it's less obvious. It's less uh, uh, a, a proclamation to the world like the, the squire uh, tabard is. Now, I, of course, make service requirements of all of my apprentices because I think it's very important, but it's, it's not quite the same. It's definitely not quite the same, uh, and they are different traditions, which is why it's interesting that we can, we can talk about this because our traditions are... Uh, they, they, they come from the same place, but they are very different um, in, in how they express. Well... 
And my expression of knighthood is definitely influenced on some level by Warmaster traditions coming up from Stygia where the Warmaster line first took off. And where it's very prominent at the moment, too. Yeah, it definitely has some influence because, you know, looking at Valus, who I've already just talked up and he was your boss, or just you, who is, you know, my my peer and my creative partner and all of these things. So I'll look at the thing. Asumatai, the creator of our realm. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Hakan, who's now president of Belagarth, former right. Stygian. Yep, we got a lot of pro- prominent more masters that come from this area. <laughs> so I will definitely look at these people and take lessons from them. For sure. And I think that indicates wisdom. Again, a part of the reason that Thumbs and I work so well is because we are different, but we recognize the strength in our differences and where we kind of, where the traditions might make up for one another. And all this kind of uh, comes into the idea as well of like, we're talking about squires, we're talking about knights, masters, apprentices. The book actually offers some pretty good insight on working with a master or a knight. So let's say that you're a squire or you're an apprentice. Uh, This is some good advice on how to make that process easier on you and, uh, and more beneficial to you as well. So the first thing that they recommend, and this is again a strong tenant of all of the Jedi teachings, is that you want to redirect the focus from serving yourself to serving your community. You know, it's not, like for me, my apprenticeship was not necessarily about becoming a war master. Obviously that ended up happening, I am a war master, but my apprenticeship was about learning from Valis, from admiring him and seeing uh, the, the benefit that he had to our community, not just to Belagarth as a whole, but to Stygia specifically, and wanting to be more like him, wanting to emulate those values um, and live up to them a little bit better. And so my apprenticeship was actually fairly easy on the service level because that was what I wanted. I, I, I was already decently combat capable when Ballas came to me. I already was reading proficiently in all these things. What I needed from him was this community service aspect, and it made it a lot easier. Yeah, a lot of my learning was uh, getting me the skills to help the community in ways that I was already wanting to do. I already wanted to be a realm leader. Part of my squireship was being a realm leader, and I learned so much from it. And in my case, it was building myself up so I was capable for doing those things. Sure, sure, having the self-confidence and and all those uh, other requirements for it. For sure. And again, this community service, it's whatever, it's whatever you are best at doing. For instance, if you've got sharp eyes and don't mind calling people out, your community service might be in the form of a herald or, or what we call a referee. You know, we, we always need more heralds. Every field I've been on has had a, a shortage of heralds for the most part, with the exception of some Battle for the Rings where they just had their schedule tight. But with the exception of that, like every field I've been on has needed more heralds. So if that's if that's the way to serve, always needs heralds. Having been head herald before, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if that's your way to serve, that's amazing. You know, we always in the morning. Most people don't want to get up early, but all the weapons need to be checked. You know, before you go on the field, uh, serving as a weapons checker is is a great way. If you're a person who is a naturally early riser and uh, don't bruise easily, you know, being a weapons checker is a good way to do things. And, and then of course, you know, we've talked about Tandar uh, in our last episode. You know, he's an amazing. Uh, chef uh, outside of Belagarth, and so he applies those skills to making the feasts at Durdemarion just delectable. So there's a lot of ways to do this, uh, a lot of ways to, to approach community service that isn't just one rote way. Uh, it, it will be based on what skills you have and can bring. And uh, along these terms, you will face stereotypes. Again, uh, Thumbs and I try really hard to be 
the best versions of a titled fighter that you can be, which is to say that you, a lot of titled fighters have a reputation for being full of themselves or for being lazy because they've gotten their title and they no longer want to do any work. They just want to sit and rest on their past laurels or for being, you know, kind of jerks because they, they sit there and they think they're better than everybody else and they try to make sure that everybody knows. You know, there's, there's a lot of stereotypes that can confront you. Um, one of the ones that I had to face because the Warmaster line was still fairly new when I was an apprentice, there was a whole lot of doubt of the validity of the Warmaster line. I got told constantly, even by a very close friend at one point, uh, that they felt that my title was meaningless because of uh, because my line lacked validity. Now that didn't stop me from trying to serve. That didn't stop me from wanting to do the best I can do and, and continuing to want to do the best I can do. But these are things you're going to run up against. If you're trying to be a good knight or a good war master or a good squire or apprentice, there are going to be people who try to hold you back with negative stereotypes. And that's just something you have to overcome. And some of those are deserved and some of them aren't. Uh, and it varies on the person. But like, Anytime you take a title, like that just automatically is setting you up to be a, a little target. more harshly judged. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But uh, in the same way, if you're, if you're focusing on your service, one, that's going to take the pressure off because it's not about you being, you know, respected or being lauded or being admired or anything like that. If, the, if what you're doing is focused on serving the community and you're successful in that, what other people say isn't going to matter because you can see the fruits of your labor. And on the other side, you're going to be going, doing a good demonstration of what you should be doing as a knight or a war master or a squire or apprentice or dragoon or mikut or, or whatever the case may be for your game and your community. If you focus on your service, then you will be flying in the face of those stereotypes. You're going to be proving them wrong. And that's, you know, that, that's a good feeling. <laughs> mm, I love it. I love it. A little bit of ego there, but that's okay. Exactly. Ego in moderation. Everything in moderation. The next piece of advice is seize every opportunity to learn and listen to your master or your knight. The reason that they are there is to teach you. Now, this isn't to say that everything they say is going to be perfect. All people are people. And just because you wear a chain doesn't mean that you are exempt from the follies or flaws of the regular mortal man. You can still make mistakes. You can still have wrong ideas. And so this is, this is something to recognize too. Listen to your master, but also recognize that they are human and learn from not just what they say and not just what they do, but also their mistakes. Uh, because if you've got a, a master who is, you know, very, very temper heavy, somebody who's quick to temper, that might teach you that that is something that's in there. You can see it being in their way. So it might help you work on your own temper because you're learning from watching them and seeing a negative impact in their life. I adore my master to follow this. He's going to love that I called him that. Um, I adore my knight. <laughs> but, I mean, he's in the wedding party when the big wedding happens. But one of the things that I learned from him, and he was very clear about this, is as much as I learned what to do from him, I learned what not to do from him. And I try to get that same message to my squires because I am fallible as heck. And, and sometimes I have uh, places to learn as well. So... This is a good thing to realize. Again, as a, ma as a quote-unquote master or as a knight or whatever, uh, it is good to recognize your own human fallibility. But also as a student, it is good to not necessarily place your, um, your master on a, on a pedestal because they are human. They will disappoint you. And that's just a part of the process. There is a difference between looking up to someone and hero worship. And yes. one of them's healthy and one of them's not. Correct. That's really the lesson here. 
And then and the next, the last thing in this section, then we're going to get back to the, the, the combat stuff again. To the forms! Is uh, learn from those who are unlike you. So again, people who use different weapon styles, people who approach the game differently. And this includes people without titles. You know, uh, just because somebody has a title doesn't mean that they are worth more than anybody else. Some of the most valuable people in the sport do not have an official title. They don't have, they're not called knight and they're not called war master, but everybody respects them because they are respectable, because they have done the work, because they are admirable in of themselves and they don't require a title. I have heard the, the, the sentence before, like, you know, I, I, I respect you as an equal, but because you haven't gone through the experience of squireship and knighthood, then you don't get to comment on my title because you don't have the experience or knowledge. I cannot disagree more. And right. I love the person who said that. They're an amazing human being. But it is so important for me to have input, have thoughts from someone who has not gone through this, from someone from the outside, because in some ways it gives them a much more dispassionate view. Yep, yep, exactly. You got to get that feedback. I, I need input from fighters and not fighters and knights and war masters and people who want nothing to do it. And my wife who doesn't even play Belagarth. Yeah. Because it helps keep me grounded. And no one person knows absolutely everything. And no one person has everything completely right. We need other people as sounding boards to make sure that what we're saying isn't just pure madness. And so this is, this is kind of that way. If you're like, you know, I've established this tradition and everybody in your tradition is like, yes, 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 that makes sense. And then somebody on the outside says, this makes no sense. You know, this is actually harming you in some way. That's worth listening to. Yeah. Even if you end up disagreeing. Yeah. Even if you disagree, you got to listen. You got to listen. Like we say, even throughout this book, there's a lot of things that we agree with. And there's a lot of things we disagree with, but we took the time to read the book and really think about it. That's the, that was we the We argue with dead guys constantly on this show we're gonna have a sticker that says pick a fight with a dead guy if, if you're one of our patreons you can you too can have a pick a fight with a dead guy sticker that's right so glad that one took off um. <laughs> but yeah so again these are important things to remember when you're working with a master or a knight and you're trying to make a good go of it so now back to the forms form two makashi this is also known as the contention form or the way of the yalsamari uh, and this is a preferred dueling form. You keep your feet in alignment. It's one-handed. So you, you only have the, the, the saber or your sword or, or whatever in one hand. The important marks of contact here are Sun Jem, which is a disabling strike to the blade. When you strike your opponent's blade and cause them to drop it, outstanding move. One of my favorite things to do, if I, if I notice somebody has a weak grip, um, I, will, I will try to disarm them because they cannot fight you if they do not have a weapon. You love Form 2. I love Form 2. That's, that, that's, that's a good point. I'm, <laughs> this is, I spent a lot of time in Form 2. And Shiak is the other mark of contact uh, that was important here. And that's a torso stab. So again, uh, Form 2 is a lot of fluid attacks and feints. It is very much akin to fencing, which again makes sense. My, uh, my little bit of training before I came to Belagarth was in, in fencing. So I am very comfortable uh, adopting uh, a kind of Makashi stance and fighting somebody that way. Now, again, this is a great form for one-on-one. -on -one. Fantastic. Not as good for group fights. If you're against multiple opponents, it starts to lose its advantage very quickly. It's very much designed for this person. If there's three things coming at you, it's not really the way to go. Right, right. But if you're, if you're trying to take on one person, again, uh, if, if you know anything about fencing, 
Makashi is extremely similar to fencing. So, Form 3, Seresu, also known as the Resilience Form or the Way of the Minoc, is basically counterfighting on a lot of levels. In a lot of ways, yes. It's very inward-directed defense uh, with an internal calm. This one is effective against multiple attackers, and it's, uh, it's, it's recognizable because you have your elbows close to the body. You avoid large sweeps and lunges. Yeah, very, a very defensive form. It's all about counterattacks, like, like Thumbs was just saying. And, and to get those, you're trying to make your opponent tired and or frustrated. Form 3 used to be my, like, dominant form to go with, if we were to, you know, look at it at these styles. Uh, it is extremely good if you know the opponent you're fighting. If you don't know the opponent, it is a much more difficult style to use effectively, because it's harder to predict what they're going to do. Because we don't have magic speed powers. If we ha actually had access to, the, like, the Jedi ability with the Force, yeah, you could predict what other people were going to do and, and block all that stuff, but... Again, as Thumb says, uh, you might know how your friends fight, but you don't know how everybody fights. So yeah, again, this is this works, uh, and, and it can work, but it is, again, a very defensive form, and it has quite a few drawbacks if you use it exclusively. Yeah, when it goes great, it's good. Uh, it's a good one to fall back on if you're getting tired. Or if you're... Or if you're against an opponent who is better than you, I honestly think that this one works really well against that too because uh, because you're being so conservative and you're trying to wait for a, a really good opportunity, it can it can get you some openings you might not already have, especially if the opponent is faster and maybe more powerful than you are. You're not going to beat them in speed. You're not going to beat them in power. So the best idea is to catch them out of position and Form 3 is pretty good for that. The harder part of this is when things go wrong, they tend to go very wrong very fast. Yeah. Because there's very... I mean, everything's so tight, everything's so close up. There's very little margin of error when you are counterfighting. Yep. And so, again, for any of these forms, we want to stress that, that most people are not going to only use one form. Most people are going to switch between multiple forms, certainly with, throughout the course of their career, and almost certainly throughout the course of a day. Or even within the course of one fight. Uh, I might start in one form and then realize it's not working and switch to something else uh, to, to switch up my pattern. So again, just because you are prone to Makashi, for instance, as Thumb says I am, um, doesn't mean that I exclusively use Makashi. I would be a very poor fighter, especially in large group combat, if I exclusively used fencing moves. So again, all of these are designed to be used in tandem with each other. All right, so the next one would be Form 4, also known as a Taru, the aggression form, Way of the Hawkbat. Uh, and in this one, you look for a lot of kinetic movement and always on the offensive. This is not one that's, uh, at least in the way that it is pure inside the book, is not really possible for us as mere mortals. I can't leap 50 feet across a room. It's just, it's not happening. I'm kind of heavy set. I'm okay with it, but it means that I'm not doing that. I believe it's, um, it's uh, episode two where that, that yeah. really cool fight. Yoda does his bouncy fight. Yep, you got that fight between uh, Yoda and the, oh my gosh. Dooku. Dooku, thank you. Um, who's, who's very Makashi. If you want to think about Makashi, think about the way Dooku fights. He's a very Makashi-based fighter. But as like, you know, Yoda's sitting there spinning around and jumping all over the place and doing all these crazy acrobatics, that in of itself is a Taru. Now, obviously, most of us are not capable of that. But a Taru, for most of us, is again, it, it is defined by kinetic movement and always being on the offense. You're talking about flurries of strikes with withdrawals to reassess. But again, it's, a, it's, it's all about acrobatics. If you in incorporate any sort of leaps, somersaults, 
cartwheels, spins into your spins into your, is what I think of into your um, into your fighting style. Those are all elements of a taru. It is uh, every every action is I am making this action. There is no hesitation in right. this. Not that you should be hesitating much in the light tipper fight anyways, but... This is very exhausting, as you can imagine. Again, if, if you're throwing a bunch of shots constantly, and you're just basically trying to keep your opponent on the back foot with, with a, 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 like a, just a large quantity of shots going their way, you will tire quickly. So this is one for somebody who's got a decent amount of endurance to them, or if you know certain combos that are going to get people out of position quickly and make, it, uh, make the fight over faster is also good. Like, I, I think about uh, when when Hakan is doing his wrist switch, like when he's doing that really fast back-and-forth uh, strike that he does. In a lot of ways, that's kind of a taru because it's it's a, yeah. a very fast um, kinetic motion that is designed to put your opponent on the back foot and keep the offensive uh, initiative in your court. What's kind of fun about that example is it also fits into uh, how at least I translated Form 5, which is Xian uh, or Jemso. Uh, also known as the Perseverance form, or the way of the... We're not sure how this one's pronounced. Cryet dragon, or Crate dragon, Crate dragon. or... Could be Crat either. dragon, Crat Could. creatures. Um, <laughs> uh, and we actually both read this close to how the other person read it, but slightly differently. I read this as kind of a power shot move, where, you know, you throw maybe two shots. Shot one shifts where the shield is. Shot two lands on the shoulder. And that's specifically the gem so aspect of this. So again, it's, it's, it's Xian gem so because it's got two parts to it. This is uh, the whole form is based in strength. So both of these rely on physical strength or physical size, but they have different applications. So what Thumb's talking about is the gem so, which focuses on the strong shattering attacks. And so when I'm looking at that, I'm thinking along the lines of like when I was learning to play golf or learning to play baseball, and people would say swing through the ball, swing through the ball, and what I eventually what I learned that was, I had to do fighting to do it, is if I actually want to hit thumbs on the right side, I'm aiming for his left side, which is to say that my force is trying to transfer all through all of his body to that other side. Yeah, if I'm hitting you in the left kidney, I want you to feel it in the right, like putting that power. In. And so to me, that is a gym so. Uh, uh, strike is to is to like to focus on those shattering attacks where you swing through the target. Now it also could also be like breaking your opponent's guard, for sure. Now on the other side is the Xian, which focuses on directing fire back at the attacker. We don't use that very much in our sport uh, because we're not allowed to block arrows with a with a sword because it's super dangerous. Yeah, but when we start doing the uh, the the Jedi kind of LARP thing that we were talking about, and we're including Nerf guns and Jedi. Uh, swords in the same thing uh you know if you can knock back a, a nerf dart at somebody that'd be kind of cool we're so cool guys we're just we're just the coolest <laughs> people around with our jedi larps and our belagarth and our 40k hey we have fun man we have fun oh man i'm, I'm not kidding we're awesome <laughs> so in that particular case it would be useful but again for most of us it's going to be the gem so uh and that again focuses on a, on the block strike or for anybody who does uh fencing this is a fluid repost so the idea is that your block and your strike are the same motion. You've got enough strength behind your shot to not only deflect your opponent's blow, but follow through with a blow of your own with the same with the same motion. And so this is this can be kind of hard to pull off. You got to practice it, but uh, again, requires strength to be able to do. Now, my favorite form 
is this next form, and this is where I find myself a lot when my when my right arm is actually being decent to me, and this is Niman, or the moderation form, or the way of the rancor. Now, a lot of what applies in this form in the book doesn't apply for us, because the focus of this form is on force abilities. So using, like, force push or force pull while you're fighting, these are, these are very Niman-based techniques, uh, using the force to kind of support what you're doing. So again, that's not something we are physically able to do. But the other important aspect of Nemon to focus on is that you, this is where you use two blades. And this is why I think it's called the moderation form, because often as a Florentiner, as we're called in Belagarth, or as just a, a, a two-sticker, or whatever the case may be, your hands or your arms have different jobs. So if I'm sitting there and I've got a blade in each hand, I might be doing Suresu, heavily defensive, uh, close in elbow, with my right hand, and fighting Makashi, or Jemso, with my left hand. And then if my opponent switches where they're at, I might have to switch which hand is doing what, I might have to reverse positions or whatever, and so you're constantly balancing between these, these hybrid forms and using them in different ways. Because again, if I've got a, a blade in each hand, it, I can do an atomic scissor. It's one of my favorite moves, is just to swing really hard with both sides at a person. And if it you lands... You have to yell atomic at the same time. You have to yell atomic at the same time. Uh, that's, 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 uh, it's like an anime. If you don't yell atomic, it doesn't happen. But this can catch me really out of position. If I throw in my atomic scissor and it lands, it's great. But if it doesn't, I'm, I, my swords are extended way out in front of me, and I am in real trouble if <laughs> my opponent can can take advantage of that and so again having your your hands focusing on different things uh this is kind of the core of the neiman form at least as it applies to us in physical fighting so these marks of contact we're going to go through these really quick because we're pretty sure you guys know where the body is and where the arm is on the body and all that um, but there's a particular focus within the jedi teaching of attempting to again solve the situation with as least violence as possible and do as little damage as possible so there's actually quite a few terms that apply specifically to the weapon side arm that that show kind of show that uh that emphasis because again the idea is disarming your opponent taking the threat out of the situation not necessarily killing them every single time as a Belagrim or other physical uh, wargamer, again, we're probably out there to kill every single time. But, but again, the, the reason the Jedi have these differentiations is because of that philosophical uh, focus. So this first one we already talked about back in uh, the first form, Shim, which is a disabling strike to the hand. Again, very much discouraged within the sport that we do. But if you're in a real fight, go for it. You can think of it as like the wrist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the low wrist too. Low wrist too. Shiok is that torso stab that we learned about in the Makashi uh, form. Uh, any straight-on torso stab will do. Uh, Sun Jim is a disabling strike to the blade. So this is a, a, a strike strong enough in order to jolt the blade from your opponent's hands. I like to do it against an opponent who has bad, a bad grip. But yeah, this one takes practice. A lot of practice. Cho Mai is a slash to the weapon side forearm. So uh, between the wrist and the elbow... Uh, whatever hand is holding the weapon, slash there. Cho Sun is a slash to the weapon side upper arm, so that's between the elbow and the shoulder on that same uh, aggressive side. So if your opponent's left-handed, it's chopping off their left arm. If they're right-handed, chopping off their right arm, etc. Not really etc. That's as many arms as most people have. <laughs> it's just, just those two. Cho Mok is, a, is a, a disabling slash to a limb other than the weapon arm. So any leg or the off weapon hand. This would be Chomok. Mukai 
if you several, sever several limbs at once. Uh, within Belagarth, there's actually a rule that says you can't do this one strike for one limb. That being said, if somebody swings a glaive hard enough to knock me off my feet and take both legs with it, I will usually take it as death. Because I'm like, no, nah, you just done at that point. You just took me out at the knee right there. I just, I have nubs. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, if I have to black knight it for Monty Python, then I'm just done. It's exactly, exactly. Sai Cha is severing the head. We do, we discourage this in Belagarth. Uh, in fact, it's it's not allowed in Belagarth. Uh, again, if you're doing Arma or uh, SEA or something like that, yep, you guys are probably going for the head. So uh, go for it. And then Sai Tok is a bisecting uh, slash across the torso. So our famous kidney wraps that uh, Thumbs and I talk about enjoying so much, that would fall under this uh, Sai Tok idea. So those are pretty straightforward. Again, you can get the book uh, if you want to like have a list of those nearby. I like to have them just as like a, a clarifier, uh, like when you're talking it's to people. Fun. It is fun. It is fun. But yeah, those are your marks of contact. Uh, the next couple bits we're just going to kind of tear through because they're really basic stuff and we had to kind of look to find a, a, a meaning for. Uh, the next book in the book is Sensibilities, you know, feeling things through the force. We kind of took this as battlefield awareness, uh, a way that I'll practice it at work. You know, if I'm in the kitchen, it's like, oh, Jamal is behind me and Abe's to my left and Max over there. And now you know the names of my coworkers. But <laughs> like keeping keeping track of where people are around me when I'm not on the field makes it easier to keep track of where people are around me when I am on the field. And this, this takes practice. It takes a lot of practice not to hyper-focus on the fight that is occurring in front of you and forget the flanker that is behind you. So this is something that all of us, even even those of us who have been doing this a while, have to practice constantly. Oh, it's going to be so shot after this pandemic. I am. It's going to take me so Closest long. to force abilities as we get, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up is they have done this field equipment and mission responsibility. This is stuff you and I are never going to have a rebreather. I wish. Which I want one. Uh, that'd yeah, be, that'd, be, that'd great. be sweet. Uh, your wrist communicators, like your cell phone, you probably wouldn't have that on the field with you anyways. Hopefully but not. But we can, we can, yeah, it's a good way to break your phone. Um, we can look at this as stuff like your PPE. You know, sunglasses if you need them and making sure they're safe sunglasses. Uh your you know good shoes as we've talked about uh gloves knee pads whatever it is just the making sure you oh water water is a great one whatever you have that you need to be basically equipped gentlemen your athletic support if you catch my meaning (laughs) i fail on that one most people do, and and I giggle when they get nutshotted. I know I should. Yeah, no, I I have no one to blame but myself. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Do, it it does not endear you to anyone when it happens to them. I just have to say that. But and then finally, they have advanced cultures and politics in the Republic, and I've always been kind of tempted to like make a list like this. They have you know Duros, Bith, Celestians, Bothans, but do instead like Bof, God Squad, Dark Angels. And just like a two or three sentence like description, you can look at this as knowing the realms around you or knowing units around you, because even though not every person in that group is identical, they do tend to have some kind of unifying factor. Even realms, you know, Stygia, if you know that, we're going to be probably obnoxiously uh, uh, individualistic. Mm Mm-hmm. 
to, we to just, a fault. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> we cannot help ourselves. Uh, BUF tend to be pretty good on like working in team combat. So it, you know, knowing the people around you will teach you things to be prepared for. This idea also applies to the idea of networking with other realms or units. No man is an island, and the same is true of any organization. Some of my best friends come from other units or other realms. Uh, I've made some amazing connections with people, and not only are those connections meaningful to me, they're also very useful. You know, having having friends across the country really pays off when I want to go traveling to an event across the country, but I don't want to pay for a hotel in the day or two that I'm going to be in the town waiting for a plane on either side of the event. So it helps to have a friend in the area whose couch I can crash on. Or even just, hey, I don't know what to expect. What's up? Or if you're trying to get an initiative started, if you want to get a rule changed or you want to, to get something introduced into the culture, it really helps to have people who are from different areas who can drum up support in that way as well. So this networking with other people who are, who are different than you again is very useful. Very useful. Oh, yeah. So uh, the next big thing is these Jedi trials. So these, uh, these trials can be things that you will face as, a, as an apprentice or a squire, for sure. But I also look at these as, as trials that every fighter faces when they walk onto the field. So we're going to go through these real quick, and then we're going to talk about ways that they, they sometimes apply to the fighting uh, field. The first one is the trial of skill. And this one is designed to show competence in combat and control over yourself and the force. The trial of courage is supposed to demonstrate skill and fortitude against overwhelming odds. The trial of spirit is about inner battles and facing your demons. Trial of flesh is the ability to overcome great pain. And then the trial of insight is being able to distinguish reality from illusion. Now, some of these are, are again, pretty straightforward. I, I honestly think, for instance, the trial of insight uh, and, and the way they describe it is something that we all have to face. Uh, every single oh, one yeah. is not, not just as fighters or community members, but just as members of the world. Being able to distinguish reality from an illusion, you can't be an effective warrior unless you can distinguish reality from illusion, unless you can perceive the lies. You won't know where to apply yourself. Um, I wrote this down as the trial to get the heck over yourself. That too. That too. One of the greatest illusions is separation. It's your own self-image. Yep, that too. Yep. So again, that, those are good ways. This trial of skill, of course, most knighting trials could be uh, applied this way. You've got a trial of skill in order to show like the, uh, the one that I had, the exhibition would have been a, a trial of skill in a lot of ways. The trial of courage facing overwhelming odds. Uh, for me, I would interpret that as I've seen some knights trials where they'll go all day. We've got like a, like a five or six hour trial and they have to take all comers, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes one-on-two, sometimes one versus a group. And they're required to win before they can progress to the next group. And so, I mean, these guys get so tired. And, and I've, I've seen guys pass out. I've seen guys faint. I've seen guys throw up. I've seen guys, uh, like all sorts of things can happen during these, these like an endurance trial or like a trial of courage. But the idea Been is... Been there, there's, done that, have the postcard. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, not just for my, my war mastership, but also to get into my unit. But again, the idea is that you still, even when you're tired, even when you're stressed, even when you're against these odds, the, the point is to demonstrate skill and fortitude despite those factors. But I think you had a, a slightly different uh, interpretation of this one, didn't you? Uh, I had this as much less combat focused. It fits more under the kind of get your stuff together challenge. But that is in the book almost more trial of spirit. I just had separated 
I had separated these a little more evenly between more combat stuff and more personalized stuff. And this is kind of, at least for me, it was confronting my own fears and the, the places I was hindering myself in my own life. And in a lot of ways, they describe that as the trial of spirit, too, because that trial of spirit mm -hmm. is about those inner battles and facing your demons. And again, this is something that everybody has to do. Anybody who steps onto the field has to deal with nervousness or doubt or insecurity or even fear sometimes. You know, there's some big people on these fields with some big weapons. Like, it's not uncommon to feel a little bit it's of fear. It's <laughs> and, and you have to face those things and overcome them. And also your own demons. You know, we also have to fight the fight against the demons in ourselves, our own selfishness, our own uh, bitterness, our own pettiness. These are things that get in our way and that must be overcome through trials of spirit. See, I had trial of courage as kind of get your stuff together. I had trial of insight as uh, getting the heck over yourself. While I had trial of spirit is being nicer to yourself in a lot of cases. Yep, that too. Like that too. I kind of separated them into three different things. And that's me. That's each you know, clear on. Um, I, I wrote in my notes here, it's uh, much about confronting your own weaknesses, uh, being honest with yourself, and often being nicer to yourself. Because it is, as much as you need to get the heck over yourself, I have hamstrung myself so many times by being mean in a way that no one else would ever be mean to me like. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I right now, I'm going through a process of trying to replace who I call my inner drill sergeant. You know, I've got this guy who is screaming in the back of my head all the time, and I'm trying to replace him with like an inner guru or, or I guess within the context of what we're talking about, my inner Yoda, you know, uh, a wise person who is still stern, who still has uh, expectations and all that sort of thing, but is willing to be gentle in the application of those expectations and, and help you work through what you need to to meet those expectations. It's far more useful, I think, than just somebody who's sitting there screaming about you at how, how bad you are at everything. And then, of course, this trial of flesh, the ability to overcome great pain. Any of us who have stepped on the field for more than a second know that it hurts. You know, not every shot is a real zinger, but every single time I go out, I have at least one shot throughout the day that really does hurt. And you have to keep fighting. Yeah, you wake up the next day and you're like, wow, where did I get hit? Let's see, where am I sore today? Uh, endurance trial is what I wrote here, just those two words. The just like, oh man, I just got to get through this and I can do it. But man, it is not fun. Right, right. So yeah, anytime you have to overcome great pain, uh, it definitely falls in here. Also, uh, within the, the book, they define this, and I thought it was kind of a good point, is the idea of separation from your master also makes pain. I mean, both Thumbs and I have expressed that we were somewhat listless after our uh, after our, our ceremonies, after we, we, we finally got our title. It was like, okay, what do we do now? Or this this, this feeling of deflation after all of this buildup to something. Um, and then, of course, the pain of being separated from your mentor. I mean, they're still there. They're still your friend. But the relationship has changed at that point. And that's hard at first sometimes. It is. It is. There's, there's a pain of separation to that. And so that also falls into this, this idea of the trial of the flesh. But I, I think this is a good segue to the, 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 the ceremonies, that, those nighting ceremonies that we have been talking about. Yeah, the, the book has, you know, exceptions to the Jedi trials, but because we're not going through wartime situations or stuff, that's not really an option for us. Like, we might not do these super formalized trials, but you will learn all of these right. lessons. Right, right, right. But, uh, for the knighting ceremony, I've, as I said, I'm recording or taking all of these notes with the idea that I'll be talking to my squires about it. So I was listing questions here like, you know, when are you ready to be knighted? 
And then, uh, when do you think someone else is ready to be knighted? And are you judging those two things differently? Which is to say that, like, you could have an ego and believe that you are ready before you are. You'd be like, nobody else is ready, but I'm ready. But on the flip side of that, you might look at somebody's behavior or actions and say they're totally ready for it while discounting the fact that you have done just as much, if not more. Yeah, I've seen squires that are like, I'm not ready, but so-and-so should have been knighted two years ago. And I'm like, yeah, you've done four times what they have. And that's not a knock on them, but, like, hold yourself to the same standard that you're holding to other people. And that definitely goes for both sure. ways. For sure. Yeah, don't don't hold yourself higher or lesser than other people. Uh, try to judge yourself in the same fashion, uh, if if you judge at all, which we really um, we should be trying to get away from. from evaluate. Own, evaluate. There's a better word. There's a better word. But yeah, these are good questions because the what happens next is is that that is the fundamental thing. Like after you've passed your trials, after you've gotten through your your ceremony, then you know you're a you're a knight or you're a, a war master. What happens then? Well, we've got these roles. Now, these roles apply to everybody, I think. Now, again, you don't necessarily have to be a knight or a war master in order to fit into one of these roles, but these are kind of the ways that people lead, uh, at least the way that we think about it within within Belagarth. And the book defines them as guardian, consular, and sentinel. And Thumbs and I had some, some slightly different uh, interpretations of these, though. Uh, you want to lead with the guardian so i have guardians are kind of the loud knights the ones that are out there they're doing good they're being seen one of the most important parts of these the two most important parts of these first you need to make sure that when you are being loud and out there you are doing it for other people you are doing it to help people uh the other thing is you need to loudly just as loudly as you do everything else own your mistakes yeah absolutely just because you have a chain does not mean you're not going to mess up. The worst I've ever run part of something in an event was the event immediately after I got knighted. No pressure. Learned a lot. Yeah, oh yeah. No, it happened. <laughs> and part of what went wrong was I was so determined that I had to prove myself because I'm a knight now. And then when things went wrong, I went, oh God, I am not worthy. I've actually had to stop owning that mistake too much. I was owning too much of that mistake. No, there is something to be able to recognizing what you did wrong, learning from it, and letting it go. Not, not harboring no it for the rest yourself, of yeah. Yep. Fla- um, what did you say? I, flat, now I'm doubting myself. What's that word? I heard flat, you say flatulate. flatulate. I heard uh, flagellate. No, no, not flat. Flagellate. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Not farting. Yeah. <laughs> it's so late, guys. It's so late. It is. <laughs> um, uh, and so for me, when I look at the Guardian, I, I define it far more simply. I look at the Guardian as being your stick jocks, people who are who are very combat focused within the um, within the community. Again, either war masters or knights, uh, but they are a stick jock is, again, somebody who doesn't necessarily get into the role play, doesn't necessarily get into the other things, but is there to fight. I got nothing against stick jocks. But, you know, they kind of fall into this thing. Now, what Thumbs is saying about them is absolutely true. You know, if you are going to be a combat-based fighter uh, or a combat-based knight, you have to be very loud about doing good and because you're going to be center stage. People pay attention to the fighters. Like, you can be an amazing fighter off... Or you can be an amazing person off-field and do ten times the work as somebody who is on the field and get just as much recognition. Uh, because, unfortunately, the way that our community is set up is to kind of admire people who are good fighters. So within here, you have a, a huge uh, responsibility. If you're one of the people that people look up to, if you are a role model within this community, like a lot of guardians tend to be, then you have an obligation to do so well 
and to not only make yourself look good and not only make your line look good, but do things that actively benefit the community. Absolutely. That's, uh, I think it's an important thing to do is whichever view you're looking at this, be joyful about what you are doing. You know, be the person who is out there having fun, being a positive aspect of like the, the personality of the larger group. Uh, because if you're having fun, the people around you are more likely to be having fun. And teach. This comes up in the Guardians a lot. There's a lot of, uh, you know, Swordmaster, blah, 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 blah. Uh, if you're a really good sword fighter and you beat that guy next to you, I mean, you and I both have stories. This is why we like Valus so much, because apparently today it's talk about Valus Day. Uh, where, you know, he would just tan our hide and be like, hey, man, that was awesome try this thing or like here's what i did here's what you like could have you know uh if you are going to be out there being the best fighter then you should be teaching people to be better fighters too because one it makes the fighting better for you and two it builds you a better reputation and it builds just a better sport in general absolutely if you're not you can be a bully and you don't want to be a bully nope you don't want to be a cheater. You don't want to be somebody who's known as a, a poor sport or anything like that. Because again, being center stage like that not only means that you're going to get more recognition uh, than other people might, but you're also going to be under more scrutiny than other people are. You know, we, we hold our, our star fighters to a very high standard and, and they, they can be criticized fairly harshly if they screw up. Yeah, if they don't achieve it, you will hear about it a lot. So that's the Guardians. You know, your blue lightsaber group. Now we fall into the, the consulars, which are your green lightsabers group. This is where I'm at. And, and for me, when I was reading this, this was your diplomats and your lore keepers. Uh, this would be where your, your realm leaders, your unit leaders, your event coordinators, like people who make that a large part of their service. This is where they fall. Now, again, consulars may be good fighters. I'm not saying that like they abandon the sword completely in order to serve this purpose, but their focus is different. For instance, Thumbs and I sitting here talking about these things to you, making a show about reading old books and applying it to, to what we're doing. This is a very much a lore keeper kind of uh, application to our community uh, of trying to enhance the knowledge and enhance the, the skills of everybody through this application. Uh, the two people I think of most when I think of this is Sir Anna, oh, Sir yeah. Anastasia, mm -hmm. and uh, Squire Antoinette. Both Im incredible workers. Not a Sir yet, but she... Uh, she embodies the concept of a consular better than most people I've met in this sport. I would agree. I would agree. And again, uh, in this way of being diplomats, like if you know anything about Squire Antoinette, she is a bridge builder between people. Like she is, she is bringing us together in a way that I find highly admirable. Um, I love the study that she's been doing and, and how she shares it with everybody. She's, she's fantastic. Yeah, and exactly. She's a, she's a shining example of how to do this correctly. Absolutely. I hope we don't do too bad ourselves, but yeah, uh, <laughs> they are there. And again, if you've ever been to a battle for the ring, you know, the hard work of Serana. She's, she's again, one of these, these incredible fonts of energy and fonts of ability that just seems to be able to lead effortlessly. And again, I've spoken to her. I know it's not effortless, but she makes it look effortless. And that's, uh, that's, that's admirable. Healers and medics also fall under this real quick. That's a good point. 
Yeah, and they're important. We love our doctors. We love our nurses. We love our medics. Not just, of course, the, those of you on the front lines fighting the pandemic right now, but of course, uh, the ones that come and keep us from dying for stupid reasons at events. You know, broken Circa. bones. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, uh, jams, concussions, too good of a night, all sorts of reasons why we need the medics around. <laughs> and, this, and the last uh, classification is, is equally as important as the other two. And again, the reason why Bellegarth and other large communities like this function well is because you have a lot of different people playing a lot of different roles. No one person is expected to be a perfect guardian and a perfect consular and a perfect sentinel. Uh, that's not possible. We're going to specialize in what we specialize, but because, you know, I, I may be more of a, a consular type, um, but of course we need the guardians around because we need those, those, those people to aspire to be, people to inspire us to fight better and discover the new things in the meta. They are necessary just as much as a, as a consular. And then if you look at these sentinels, this last one. Which is kind of what I think of myself as. As a sentinel? I could see that. Yeah. I could see that with your yeah. abilities. So uh, your skilled, anything that falls into a skilled non-combat ability, that is where the Sentinel thrives. So we're talking about the carpenters who come out and build the fortifications that everybody else fights around. We're talking about the leather workers that are able to transcribe an idea into something that looks really cool and contributes to the on-field realism that we're going for. Uh, we're talking about, again, I want to bring up Tandar again. Oh my gosh, an actual chef running a feast. Oh my gosh, thank you. That is the best argument I've heard to go to any of those events we were talking oh, about. Oh, you got right to, there. Dude. It's just, it's Tandar. Ta Tandar's fantastic, dude. Again, everything else about the Durdamarian setup for events, I love. But Tandar is, is by far the best thing because having some good food. To, to nosh on is is fantastic but again we've uh, uh, any anybody who's good at sewing uh computer people our, our webmasters who are able to to keep all of the boards functioning my wife who is editing this show and and helping oh, me with, you. with and help me with all the templates for all the memes and stuff these are all extremely skilled people who who help everything move, move smoothly who maybe are not combat focused I have made sure I have the skills that I can make any new person anything they need, basically. And that's what I think of with the Sentinel a lot. Like, And if I don't know how to do it, I know where to find the thing to learn how to do it. Absolutely. Except Absolutely. for embroidery. I do not want to learn embroidery. I'll pay someone for that stuff. Ten bucks says, uh, within the next five years, you're going to take it up. Ten bucks. Oh, I thought about it. Oh, it makes me mad just to think about it. <laughs> I just I think you could be good at it, man. Again, you're a you like you say you're a sentinel. Um, <laughs> not that you're not a good fighter, but uh, you're a crafty, crafty guy. And I, I, I know where my skills lie. Yeah, no doubt. Well, me too. I like books. Really, I didn't know that. I know. I know. I hide it so well. But, but moving on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we haven't even got to the Sith book yet. Um. We got the, the seventh form to get to. Drum roll, please. Our final of these forms. That's a terrible drum roll on my part. Juyo. This is Ferocity Form. Way of the Vornskir. Uh, this is one that is forbidden. The reason it's talked about so late in the book is that you need to already be a knight, if not a master, in order to even touch this form as a Jedi. Now, most of us... And even then, they don't like it much. Right, they don't. Uh, but most of us, as fighters, have tapped into this form at one, one time or another. Uh, this form is characterized by vicious and unpredictable controlled passion. That is an important word here, controlled. And is also known by its sharp and chaotic movements that are fueled by excitement, 
again, passion or rage. Now, this is this is very tricky uh, to do. One of the reasons the Jedi discourage it, one of the reasons we discourage it, is it's very easy for these emotions to get the better of you and to make you sloppy. I have seen, like I, I myself, when I first started to actually learn how to fight and like wanted to accelerate my own path, I tried to use anger as a fuel behind my, behind my fighting. And sure, it made my swings fast and powerful, but they were also sloppy and imprecise. And if I was caught out of position, I was easily overwhelmed or, 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 or because I was so aggressive, I was easy to get off balance at that time. And that's one of the dangers that you see in this particular form. Now, again, we've all gone here at one point or another. You know, we've used frustration or, or like in a night trial, like you we were talking, you just have to dig deep and like get that emotion, that emotional quality to get through it. I was going to say, the place to use this is when you were using, the phrase I use is uh, piss and vinegar. Apologies <laughs> if that's a little rude. But um, I've talked about it before. I don't know if I talked about it on a podcast. In my night's trial, because I was exhausted, because it was hot, and I had fought almost everyone at Western Wars, I, I was just getting frustrated uh, but I was using that, like, contrariness is... Uh, contrariness is the word I like to use instead of, like, rage. Because rage is dangerous. Right. To keep me going. Like, no, I can do this. I'll show you. And we got to Paksha, Unimate, my friend. Beautiful man. And he was so nice while just beating me up and down the field. Because <laughs> he's so good. He's good. But he, the whole time he was like, you're doing great, brother. Like, just breathe. Take a moment. Do you need to pause for a second and get you some water? You're doing great. You got this, brother. And I was like, Paksha, shut up. <laughs> like, Less positivity, just, more amping. I love you, but if I calm down like you're trying to get me to do, I will fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, there's sometimes where it has to... Or, or, or one of the examples I use is uh, you have three choices when you get hit in the nose. Because getting in the nose hurts. If, if that doesn't spark a little bit of anger in you, I don't know who you are because getting in the nose hurts. It's going to make you a little mad. Now you have three things you can do here. You can either step back and, you know, hold your nose and, and kind of let that pain control you. Now, your opponent might be an honorable person who allows you the space to do so, apologizes for hitting you in the face, and lets you recover. It's not guaranteed that that's going to happen. I have absolutely had people blast me in the face and then kill me with their next swing while I was sitting there reeling. So it's not necessarily a guarantee that somebody is going to be merciful um, or, or even decent in this particular case uh, when that occurs. Your second choice, you get hit in the nose and you fly into a rage. Like either you're, you're just smacking the other person or you're screaming and yelling or whatever and you end up making yourself look like more of a jerk than they are, one. And two, your shots are now fueled by like a very sloppy passion and likely will not accomplish much at all except just making you look like a fool. And I've lost my temper on the field before, and it is the place that I am the most likely to hurt someone. Exactly. Which is why I try so hard not to do it. Now, the third option here is you get hit in the nose, you get angry. But instead of that anger being a large fire, like it is in the second option, you narrow it down into a laser beam. And that same intensity is now applied over a very focused thing. And so for me, it's a matter of like, I get smacked in the nose. My next shot to their kidneys is removing both of their kidneys. <laughs> then I let it go. Yeah. You are using the, the, the like ow adrenaline rush to just put a little more like usually speed into your next shot. A little stank, a little bit, a little stank on that shot. And, and that extra speed does tend to bring a little bit of power. Again, you are not trying to hurt this person. Right. It's not sloppy. It's not out of control. 
It's a focused laser. Yeah, you are admitting the fact that the adrenaline is spiking through your system right there and you are using it. Now, the important thing here is you have to let it go. Like, once once you get there and, like, you're able to act upon it and it moves out of you, you have to let that sensation go. Because if, for instance, I I get really bent out of shape if somebody cheats against me. I I get really bent out of shape. I could be having a great day, not necessarily winning every fight, but just be having a good time. And then go against somebody who blows off a couple of my shots and it just gets me tilted. That's the, the, the term I like to use, tilted. Now, at this point, I am just so full of frustration that it doesn't matter if I'm fighting that cheater, I'm going to be sloppy regardless. At this point, I need to go sit down and center myself, take a couple drinks of water, maybe talk to somebody and just like get it off my chest or whatever. But at this point, the emotion has become hindering to me. I am no longer in control of it. It is in control of me. And this is an important distinction to realize. You're going to have a lot better time on the field if, I mean, again, emotion being present isn't a bad thing. A lot of us are often excited or passionate to be there. That's not a bad thing. But letting that emotion control you and make your your moves sloppy, uh, you got to reassess. Got to reassess what you're doing. So the last part of this book of the Jedi, and then we're going to move on to this Sith comparison, is the idea of <laughs> taking on a student. Now again, like the last time we did this, you guys didn't get to see it because uh, again, uh, it got lost. We're going to do it again at some point. But the Klingon episode ended up being about two and a half hours as well. So these episodes are going to be chonkers for us. We're covering a whole book in one go. Yeah. It's a lot. And in this particular case, two. Uh, But the the last one here is taking on a student. And uh, the advice that's given in this particular place, because again, this is what we're all working towards. Really the ideal uh, goal of becoming a knight or a war master or a mikut or a dragoon or whatever you are, is to eventually teach other people the good portions of what you've learned, to to indoctrinate them into the good parts of what you've been doing. So, of course, taking a student is a part of the process. You want to choose somebody who is alike in outlook, temperament, and goals. You don't want somebody who's too different from you because it's going to hinder the learning process. You also don't want somebody who's exactly like you uh, because you're going to irritate each other. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, drive each other up a wall. And also you want to realize that all learning is bi-directional. So even if you are the master and they are the student, you should always be learning from them. They always have something to teach you. Even as a master, you shouldn't have stopped learning at this point. So from each of my students, for instance, when I'm talking to Turkey or talking to Kaji or Desi, I'm learning something different from each of them. Each of them is enriching my life in their own way. And that's that's important uh, because if I'm not learning from them and uh, that, that makes it harder for them to learn from me, for sure. Uh, the next main point here is to make sure that you're not too overprotective. This is something that, of course, is very hard to struggle with, especially if you become friends with your student, uh, which is which is very easy to do, is, is to not be too overprotective. You have to be willing to let them fail occasionally. Failure is an amazing teacher, and it can often teach more than success does. And so it's not a matter of setting them up for failure necessarily, but you have to be willing to let them fail uh, in order for them to learn from it. This is one thing that I definitely struggle with because I've talked before. It's very important to me that my squires are close, that we we're keeping a very, I, I keep a tighter connection with my squires than I see a lot of knights do. And I have them keep it between each other, but it does mean that when I have to, you know, let them go off on their own, it's hard. The, the first time my squires went to an event without me. 
like since they'd become my squires and they went and two of them went together was really difficult for me because i kept being like oh man they don't like i'm not there to f they were perfectly fine they oh sure did dominated that event they did great very capable individuals uh, no doubts there <laughs> but and i and i knew they would but like not having not having me being there was extremely difficult so letting go i mean we talked about you're still learning the thing that i will always have to practice in and out of squireship knighthood belagarth is letting go of people when the time is there and letting them live their lives and and walk their path again uh, as a teacher you're 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 hopefully there to pick them up afterwards and help them see what they did wrong and help them learn from it grow from it perhaps not make the same mistake again but yeah, uh, one of the things that, that was told to us in the army is basic training is the place to make mistakes. That's the place to make your mistakes and get them out of the way. Because if you actually get onto the field of battle and you're still making mistakes, mm, no. Making mistakes in basic? No, that's the place to do it. That's the place you want to do it. The, making mistakes in practice? That's absolutely the place to do it. So that then later on, you've got that lesson. And then the last... Uh, part of this is to meditate seriously on the topic. Now, again, we've discussed that not everybody is into the same types of meditation, but what this says is to think soberly on the topic, to really make sure that you're a good fit and that this commitment is going to be one that is going to benefit both of you. I took a year after I received my chain before I even entertained anybody as my student. I was like, nope, I need to figure out my role as a war master. I need to figure out what I am going to do now. And, and what that looks like before I start to confuse it with somebody else. And so I, I thought really long and hard before I took my first apprentice. I went much faster. And I know people who, you know, have taken their uh, squire the day they get knighted, which that I don't really care for. G give yourself a little bit of breathing time. But I've also seen it work too. So, you know, there's no right answer. But in my case, it was very much like the, you know, the stars aligned right for to have it happen. But it wasn't really like as soon as I became a knight, I went out looking for having a squire. I, I kept my eye out. I started thinking about it, but I made sure it was the right squire, not just the first person to come up and the first option I had. Absolutely. Yeah, you thought, you, at least you thought seriously about it. You made sure that the connection was right and that the energy was right before you went ahead and did mm -hmm. it too. And we discussed it for like, a month before it actually happened. So even though it went quicker than mine did, it still sounds like you thought seriously about it before doing so. Uh, so yeah. So that's the book. Um, <laughs> again, there's a lot of stuff in there about uh, about some some history and some culture stuff, some other cool lore. But uh, and I, Super again, if cool. you're a Star Wars fan, I definitely recommend checking it out. But that is the useful stuff we were able to pull from the Book of Jedi or the, or the Jedi Path. Anything else you want to add before we move on? Nah, I, that. That's all, yo. It's super cool. All right. So, uh, yeah. We're going to move on to our next section, which is comparing this, uh, this book of the, uh, this Path of the Jedi with the Book of Sith. So all cards on the table. I forgot we were doing this book and <laughs> did not read it. And I sent lurk a message yesterday saying oh bleep i forgot about the sith bright side he takes meticulous notes and i have read this book like four times now but i just i felt it was fair to get it out there the, the other uh it wouldn't have worked so well if he had forgotten to read the jedi path 
we would have, we would not have been recording tonight. But uh, the Book of Sith is primarily, before we get into it, is primarily a egotistical uh, rant by several different lead Sith about why they are so cool. And why everyone else is dumb. And why everybody else is dumb. Now, from these things, we've been able to extract a few uh, decent lessons, but it is not nearly as instructive as the, the Jedi was. And you'll see why as we're going through it. Like, that's actually a, a, a purposeful thing within the Sith philosophy uh, in, in differentiation from the Jedi. But uh, So this is going to go a little quicker. We're going to kind of compare things as we're going through, uh, you know, talk about what, what the Sith are doing and kind of compare it to what the, the Jedi do. And, of course, between the two of us, um, w- neither of us, like is strictly Jedi or strictly Sith when it comes to actually like listening to these books as with anything we recommend moderation you can learn from any source so there are good things to take from the Sith there are so things that if you learn that lesson it may not be so beneficial long in the long run so we're going to go over it real quick the first thing to know the first big thing to understand about the Sith is that they are obsessed with personal power that is the very core of their quest is the accumulation of personal power, personal glory, and victory. And them doing it. Me, 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 me. Them doing it, yep. The knowledge must be kept secret. Uh, so so knowledge is best when it is like kept to one person. So this is what we're doing right now, sharing knowledge with everybody. This is very not Sith. <laughs> this oh, they is, would hate this. They would hate this. This is, this is exactly against it because we're, we're sharing our quote-unquote secret knowledge with all of you. You know, and we've talked about in cases with other books, we're talking about spies or counter spy operations or whatever, that there are times where you don't share all knowledge all the time. But we generally are on team teach our opponents so they're better, so we have to get better, so etc. And of course, again, we look at it as being all members of the same community. And so even if I'm teaching yes. somebody here in Stygia who's not a part of my unit, which is everybody, um, I'm still making <laughs> Stygia better. And even if I'm teaching somebody at an event who's not a part of my unit or my realm, I'm making all of Belagarth better. And so, again, we, we deviate from the Sith uh, with this particular uh, rule pretty, pretty significantly. But the Sith Code uh, kind of defines, again, much like the Jedi, Jedi Code did, uh, the Sith Code uh, defines the mentality of the Sith. And so if you haven't heard it, it's very similar to the Jedi Code, but it goes like this. Peace is a lie. There is only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. And through victory, my chains are broken. The force shall set me free. Now, one of the big differentiations I want you to notice between that and the Jedi Code is the strong emphasis on the first person singular. Me, 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 me. Tire Code is I... All for me, all my, all me. It's all directed inwards. It's all very selfish. This entire Sith Code is extremely selfish and self-serving. Whereas if you're reading through the Jedi Code, there is not one mention of first person singular. Not one. And again, this is the, the focus. This is the difference in the focus of where the power is going. For the Jedi, the power is meant to serve other people and therefore goes outwards. For the Sith, the power is meant to serve them and therefore goes inwards. Now, it is important to know your own needs and make sure that it, not necessarily greed, but making sure that you are taking care of yourself, that you were considering the first person as well as the larger thing. But they take it like 18 steps too far. We say there's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve more or wanting to go out there and do more. However, when it is all done for the self-serving goal of making you cooler, 
or making you better exclusively at the expense of everybody around you, that is when it starts to become harmful. That's when this code begins to become harmful, is when it begins to interfere with the harmony of the entire uh, unit. This is something I actually struggled with as a squire, because I had kept having a thought, because I was like, it's not about me. You know, it's I'm looking at that kind of Jedi uh, third person, the, the no, no I, no me. And I was like, this is stuff I would be doing anyways, whether or not I had the title. So I'm just doing the title as like an ego trip. So I shouldn't be going for the title. And Diamond and I had long talks about this. And eventually he's like, no, it's okay to want things. It's okay to want that recognition. And it's okay to want that title. It's okay to want to have to earn something. You just have to understand that at the same time, that doesn't make you better than anyone and you have to you're you still even though you want that thing even though there is a, a self-serving aspect of this you are still primarily working for the betterment of all and if improving yourself is also improving your community then it is absolutely something worth working towards but again what we're talking about is things that are at the expense of the community you know if we wanted our titles and it made the community worse for wear, then that would be a very Sith thing to do. Again, both of us really try to be service-oriented people, <clears throat> and we believe that anybody who bears a title should be service-oriented people. Um, but the Sith, what did I say? Servius. Servius, yes. Um, but service. Again, this is the difference between uh, the Jedi and the Sith. Because, again, important to the Sith is the advancement of the self above all others. And this is very much defined within their idea of the rule of two. Uh, so this was set down by Darth Bane, I think. Is that correct? He's super cool. Yes, that's Darth Bane. They did a couple of novels about him. He came up with the rule of two. Again, we're skipping over a lot of history and a lot of like alchemy and, and, and dissertations on force powers because those things are not important to what we do. Um, but this rule of two is interesting because it defines the difference in the sharing of knowledge. The Jedi look at flame or look at knowledge as being a flame. It is not diminished if it is spread. In fact, it grows brighter if it is spread around more. Whereas the Sith will look at knowledge as venom. The more you spread it around, the more diluted it becomes until it's not potent at all to do anything. Venom is most potent when it is concentrated, in particular in one source. And so this, again, this, this flies completely against the philosophy of the show, which we're all about spreading that flame to everybody. Not literally. We understand it's fire season. That might be a tricky turn of phrase. <laughs> we take this very literally right now. Our mountain caught on fire last week. Yeah, literally. The mountain I live on caught on fire. Um, <laughs> so, so yes, this, this, I, this idea of spreading around uh, versus this, this idea of condensing it in one place. You know, if I was doing all this research and just keeping it to myself, uh, that would be this idea of venom, you know, making sure that it is concentrated and potent. Um, and, and thusly, you only want to give your apprentice or your squire only snippets of wisdom. You only want to give them as little as possible, really as much as they need to achieve uh, their usefulness to you. Uh, because the more they learn, the closer they get to the ultimate goal of any Sith apprentice, which is killing their master. Yes, if you are a Sith, your apprentice will kill you. It's going to happen. It's the whole plan. This is the most depressing learning structure I've ever heard of. Right. And, and, and so, like, I look at that and I'm like, that is stressful. Man, if I had to constantly be wet watching my back uh, because I was expecting, you know, TF or Kaji to come you know, springing at me from the shadows or, or for, like, a, a, an anthrax bomb to come at me from Desi, like, I, it would be a very stressful time. Very st stressful uh, learning environment. 
So I don't necessarily favor this because, again, it, 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 it builds up all this resentment and this bitterness in your apprentice who will eventually usurp you. And again, if, if we're thinking about this in a, in a term like uh, a wargaming where people aren't actually going to kill one another, there's still this idea that if your apprentice or I, like I know people who still to this day hate their former knight or hate their former war master because of how strict they were or how cruel they were to them. That sounds awful. And so this bitterness does no favors for the community. It only, it only harbors grudges, which are, which are no bueno. This uh, method also favors a very strong central rule. Both Thumbs and I have been realm leaders. It is very, very stressful to be the only person in charge, <laughs> to be the only person making decisions. It's exhausting when you're one of three, let alone when it's just you. So, so, but this idea, again, if you're trying to con consolidate all this power, the idea is you consolidate all the uh, political power as well into a strong central rule under you, of course. Very stressful. You're going to get a lot of gray hairs. Look at Palpatine. He did not age well. That's why. That's exactly why. Not the dark magic. Right. Right. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the dark, the dark stuff uh, corrupting him. But even before that, you know, he, he you know, he had, uh, it wasn't. I don't know if I classify him as a ladies' man. Ladies' man Palpatine out on the town. Like, uh, <laughs> not really a thing. Moving on. Moving on. Um, you want to keep your presence unknown and strike from the shadows. And this is actually a, a, a place that I do tend to agree with. So as we were speaking about earlier, uh, squires tend to wear a very brightly white-colored vestment, either a hood or a, a tabard or such, to designate that they are a squire. Apprentices do not do this. Uh, war masters don't typically do this. We are undecided as war masters as to what we're going to wear. As a, some of us wear chains in homage to our our, our roots as a knightly lineage. Uh, some of us wear uh, a beaded necklace as kind of a, a an idea for monsterdom. And other people do other things. It's it's all very individualized. And this gives us a a certain anonymity, an ability to pass unknown and unseen through certain circles. And and sometimes that can be a benefit. You know, sometimes we are able to see more as a as a hidden observer uh, than somebody who is there in an in a, even they don't realize an official capacity because somebody shows up and they're very obviously wearing a knight's chain or very obviously wearing a, a tabard like a white tabard, and people might act differently or say things differently than they might normally, and so in this particular case, I, I I'm not saying that it's a bad thing that squires wear white or that knights are, are distinguishable by their belts and by their chains. But there are actually benefits to, to moving a bit more anonymously. See, I admittedly went the exact opposite here. I mean, I picked primary red and primary blue, like ultramarine blue, uh, and I use yellow or gold highlights a lot. I basically picked the primary colors, like the three primary colors for my colors, because I wanted to stick out not because yay look at me but because if someone needed to find me for something if i was needed for something bam there i am i'm easy to spot and i wanted that to hold me to not just so i'm easy to spot if someone needs help but to hold me to the level absolutely absolutely and again i like i said there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with it and i will occasionally wear my chain uh, especially when i'm in like you know what i want to help Whoever needs help, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk about wearing my chain and that sort of thing. But if you look at my colors, very demure, uh, basically just black. I like to blend in. I don't like to stick out necessarily. And that's also a personality trait. And I have my non-expressive kits too. Not many of them, but I have like my stuff and I'm like, I just don't super want to be noticed right now. 
Here's my chill old shirt and pants. But you have that option. Again, that's that's like a gray Jedi move right there because if you look at the Jedi handbook, you, as a Padawan or a knight, you have to always be in uniform. So by choosing to go out of uniform, you've strayed into my territory, sir. Oh. <laughs> Not that I classify myself as a Sith. I, when I was choosing my lightsaber, I thought about red for a second, and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm really more of a consular. I don't abide by this idea of using hatred to fuel me. It just it hurts my stomach. <laughs> like, like 10, 15 years ago. Maybe, but these days you've you've chilled right the heck out. Well, then I got ulcers, and and so now yeah, it's <laughs> amazing what that'll do. Like, <laughs> the rules are a little different. And the last thing to this rule of two is uh, obviously, as it implies, there is one master and one apprentice. But all throughout the movies, we see that Palpatine chooses uh, several candidates in, in many uh, circumstances, and then pits them against one another. And they may not, may not even know that they're being pitted against one another for his amusement or for his judgment. For instance, when uh, at the very beginning of episode three, when they're fighting on the ship and Palpatine and uh, is, is, is uh, locked into the chair and you've got Dooku and Anakin fighting. At that moment, Palpatine has been preening, has been, has been um, uh, molding. Prepping, both of them. Prepping, yeah. Both of them for the moment to become his true apprentice. And so in this moment, it's a test. It's a test that neither of them knows they're doing. You know, Dooku doesn't know that he's been uh, manipulating Anakin and, and, and bringing him up uh, to this level. You know, Anakin obviously doesn't know that he's being played as a puppet against Dooku. And so in this moment, Palpatine holds all the strings and he turns them against one another and chooses the strongest one. Now, again, if, if, our, if we actually died, this might not work so poorly but in a in a group or in a community where we get right back up again after we die this policy breeds feel bads uh this is this these are grudges waiting to happen right here yeah uh if if you went like hey kachi it's your turkey the other one will lose my respect and training forever Oh, that would go terribly. That would go horribly. For one thing, I would probably <laughs> lose a friend because I was being a gigantic jerk. Oh yeah, either way, who no matter who won. And, and even even if that didn't happen, it would breed so much resentment and bitterness in the in the person who who didn't win that it's just not it's just not useful. That just that just would not be useful to anything. So that's the rule of 2. The Sith, the Sith have two styles of combat they say uh, that they focus on. Instead of having the seven forms that we talked about for the the Jedi, the Sith have two. And that is fast style and strong style. So fast style has an emphasis on footwork, speed, precision, and acrobatics, and is generally frowned upon as a Sith style because they absolutely favor the strong style. This is what you normally see uh, Sith using. Again, I, you see Dooku using fast style quite a bit when he's like he's there using the, like the Makashi-based uh, Sith fast style. Someone like Stitch is who I would think of for this. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of a real-life fighter, Stitch would be a good example. Not that I think that Stitch is an evil person or anything. But no, 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 no. He's just a very... The, the style-wise. But he's just very quick. But strong style uses your body weight, muscular strength, and anger. Um, and, is, and it is also very similar to that Jimso or Shien uh, Form 5 that we were talking about for the Jedi. So again, this is what you see most of the time. Those, those strong, hacking shots that are fueled by passion and anger and hatred. Another big part of Sith's combat recognize is that of Dun Mok, 
which is the use of taunts or verbal attacks. And this doesn't always have to be you, uh, you know, uh, poop talking your opponent across the table or, or, or being a jerk or yelling insults across the field. We have a guy here locally, Angus, who uses just the, the straight, he's a loud guy. He can summon up quite a bit of noise. And when he starts making noise, he can distract an entire side of the field just to him. And that can draw people out. That can make people cocky. That can make people irritated. And uh, and it definitely disrupts things on that side of the field. I would say that that, in a lot of ways, is this Dune mock. Uh, another example is Oni. The You know, you all know Oni. I don't have yeah. to explain that. You, he, you guys all ran know the Oni. show for a while. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> he... Uh, he does the. He picked it up from Legend of Zelda of all places, but the hat, 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 like and a strong, a strong fight up. Yeah, it took him a while. He learned how to switch it to red, red instead. But I mean, he'll still sometimes just hat, uh, and it is distracting and intimidating sometimes. It's like a sonic cannon. Like when when he gets going, it can hit you like an actual force. Like it, you can like feel the sound hitting you. Jesus, I'm trying to yeah, <laughs> and that's on purpose. That's planned. And and those are ways. Those are two ways that you can do this doing mock that doesn't make you a complete jerk. Now again, we're, I'm never going to encourage people to go out there and like spread feel bads on the field, which is exactly what you're going to do. Your mother never loved you. No, don't don't do that. Do not do that. Uh, no, no, for real taunts or verbal attacks, but using the power of your voice uh, to to manipulate your opponent. That's absolutely. That's been done in martial arts for a long time. And then, of course, uh, they, the Sith claim Juyo as one of their styles of combat. Uh, and that makes sense because, of course, it's the, the controlled use of passion. And for them, it's the use of anger and fear. Um, they, they do put a special emphasis on the use of fear here because the fear of death, the fear of failure, uh, the fear of losing status, losing face, uh, these can all be things that, that fuel your Juyo as well. But the important aspect here, even with the Sith, where you would expect a little bit more of a surrender to that emotion is that you have to be in control. This is not a submission to fear. This is not a submission to anger or hatred. This is the control of those emotions and the use of them in your fighting style. That's, a, that's an important distinction and something, again, not all Sith are able to do it. A lot of them will just enter this, this anger flow and they'll be like, I'm in the flow. And it's like, dude, you're sloppy. <laughs> you are sloppy as heck. I mean, you're, you're strong, but you're sloppy. So yeah, those are the styles of Sith combat. And again, it's a little bit less, a little bit more straightforward than the Jedi, a little bit less nuanced, but that's the way they think about it. There's a strong use of totems, talismans, and amulets all throughout Sith culture, whether you're talking about your, your mainline rule of two Sith, uh, Palpatine, all the way back to the historical Sith, of course, the, the witches of Dathomir. Um, all of these guys have a, a very strong emphasis on the use of totems, talismans, and, and amulets. So what are these? What, 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 what can, we can boil this down to? It is an object which you imbue with a personal meaning. So a war braid that you got at an event that was really good that you have imbued with meaning and that means a lot to you and that now is a good luck charm. Like you believe that you do better with it and, and, and conversely, if you don't have it on you, you you're going to think that you're going to do worse. Any sort of little lucky charm like that would fall into this realm or, or anything that is necessary to do in order to prep. Like, it used to be necessary for me to listen to certain songs before I went to fight. If I didn't do that, I wouldn't have a good day on the field because I had meant, uh, psychologically prepped myself that those things had power, and without my power, I was powerless, of course. There is power in tradition. Like, I mean, it's, 
a lot of what religions do and that's no comment on religion one way or the other but that that recognized tradition especially it's older ones it's thousands of years that means something but again what you're talking about the thumbs is more of the jedi application remember we were talking back to clans now each of those clans have clan pride each of them have their own symbols each of them have their own traditions their own ways of doing things and in this way like a realm or a unit that kind of symbol is extremely uh, that that grounds you to a force external of yourself when i'm wearing my stygian symbol that doesn't make me feel powerful because i'm powerful it makes me feel powerful because i come from stygia and i'm proud of stygia you know mm, whereas that's what, we're that's... what we're talking about here is like a specific thing that is only you now again i'm not saying that this is good bad or otherwise but it's, it's, it's a difference in the it way just, of thinking it is so they have their own kind of tests, of course, all throughout the, the, the Sith process, you're being tested because you're being pitted against things that you are kind of hopelessly outmatched against. But uh, the, the Witches of Dathomir have a very specific style of test that they call the Crucible. Just going to run over them briefly. I thought they were kind of cool and could potentially influence uh, trials or ordeals that, that uh, might take place later on. Uh, the Test of Fury. All combatants are pitted against one another or the Instructor and or the Instructor. Uh, in a lot of ways, when I teach gladiators, this is kind of happening. We'll start the class off with some useful instruction on something practical. And then it's like, all right, I'm stepping into the ring and you're all against each other too. Let's fight. And so it's it's kind of this uh, um, trial by fire in a lot of ways. The test of night is the same thing, just in darkness. Anybody who's engaged in night fighting has been testing themselves in such a way. The test of elevation is the same as well, but it's on shifting terrain. Uh, this would be kind of cool if, if we could figure it out. I, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about that one gladiator show that we did. Uh, when we, The one, the very one gladiator show yeah, we, yeah, show we yeah, did. Yeah, 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 way, way, way back on. When we had, like, the, the, the mats out on the gym floor and you could only walk on the mats and, like, they were the boats were kind of shifting around each other occasionally. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I thought of is at War of the Gate for the last couple of years, we've had balance beams. And the, 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 the balance beam is only, you know, like an inch or two off the ground. You're actually, you're not like Olympic Serena Williams in it. Um, Serena Williams is a tennis player, mate. <laughs> uh, oh God, who am I thinking of? Doesn't matter. Any Russian uh, name. You can just throw any Russian name in there and you'd be fine. So cool. Uh, there, there's <laughs> S- Simone Biles, I think is who I'm thinking of. There you of, go. But, there you go. Uh, uh, sorry. Again, so late. It is. Um, but it is just wide enough that it's like you can stand, you know, foot and foot but you can't, like, face them directly. Right. You know, you are still on a balance beam. And the style of fighting is so completely different on that than it is anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It, it, it tests you. Yeah, it tests you uh, in, a very, in a very real way. So, yeah, these are kind of ways of, of uh, looking at these, these Witches of the Death. I, I like these tests. I thought they were kind of cool. I might try to implement them in, in some of my trials. Another good one is they can't leave the circle. Ah, yes. Like you put them in a circle, and they other people can come in and out, but they have to stay. The circle is mine, and I shall protect it. It's hard. That one's hard. So again, going back to like general Sith ideas, the Sith operate off of the belief that they are superior, and that anybody who is not them is immediately inferior, and that if you are inferior, that you are you're supposed to be exploited. The superior are supposed to exploit the inferior. Um, and of course, I don't agree with classifying anybody as, imp- as inferior or superior. You know, I, I consider myself a good fighter, but there are days where I will get killed by a noob because I'm not paying attention. I'm not superior in that particular case. I, I have every, I can, I can be beaten. 
I am not superior. I may be a better fighter than other people might be, but I am not superior because of that. I can always be defeated. Um, but the Sith don't think that. They, 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 there's this whole idea that you have to be the best. The Sith also use fear as a political weapon. Think about it like a false flag operation, like the Reichstag of Germany, where the, um, the Nazi party burned the Reichstag, which was the German parliament, to the ground. And they blamed it on the Soviets and the Jews and the gays and everybody else they rounded up to put in camps. So this false flag operation this is very much Sith, like using fear as a weapon, not just in fighting, but like using it psychologically against your opponents. You know, I, we do this in small ways too. Like a lot of my armor, for instance, we've been talking about this. It makes me look rather fearsome. Like if I've got my full it's kit It's designed on, to look intimidating. Yeah, it looks intimidating. This in some small way is used as a fear as a weapon. Now, I'm not using it to get my way when it comes to, like, realm politics or, God forbid, national politics, but I do use it in We're a We're not burning way. anything down. Not burning anything down. Not threatening anybody's life. Nothing like that. But yeah, so this is, this is very Sith. And then, of course, hiding in plain sight and using agents. Again, we already talked about how this kind of is a little bit more similar to the way war masters and their apprentices work, which is that we're not necessarily super obvious, but we are there. And that we're, that we're constantly acting as intermediaries through our organization as well. In some way. War, as different war masters are different, of course. And the last thing, that, and this is, of course, Palpatine saying this, is, the, is how to turn a Jedi to the dark side. And I, I just thought this, this process was interesting. And it actually kind of reflects what happens when a war master or a knight loses this noble bearing, loses the idea of service being at the, the core of what we do, and turns to the dark side, which is to say selfishness or, or self-serving nature. The first thing is they must be tempted by a false nobility into becoming a puppet. So think about Anakin and his desire to save Padme's life. He had these visions of her dying. He was terrified by that. And Palpatine offered a way for him to potentially save her. This is a false nobility. Anakin thought he was doing the right thing, but he was being led by his emotions into betraying uh, the, the trust of his order. The second thing here is that puppets must be tested and galvanized by fear. So, of course, Anakin was working all throughout the Clone Wars. That's how he was doing it. But any, any situation that tests them and, and makes sure that they are up to it or die. You know, again, like uh, the, the Sith Lords are often putting their, their potential apprentices in life-threatening situations being like, well, if you die, you die. Then you weren't worthy of being my apprentice. That's fine. But these tests are, are, are crucial because they lead to the final and third part of this process, which is that a forced submission occurs after an act of no return. So after Anakin kills Mace Windu and, and Palpatine is able to use not just his anger over that, but his guilt over that to control him there for like, he becomes Cal Palpatine's puppet completely at that point. For like 25 years, like it is years before he's stands up for himself in a real way again. So again, this can happen to any one of us, any, anybody who aspires to any sort of noble, calling or noble trapping we can be betrayed if our emotions lead us astray and and eventually if we create a commit an act of no return we may not be able to come back from it and we may think that we are now on a path that uh there is no deviation from i'm a person who believes in atonement i i believe that uh you can you can like most things you can come back from now if you're a murderer mm. <laughs> I mean, uh, there, there, you know, that's that's another thing or whatever. But I, I I believe in atonement. I believe in if somebody puts in effort, they can they can change themselves. But it is hard, you know. And, and if you start to live for selfish reasons, it's hard to stop. So I think that's the caution here. That's the cautionary tale. Well, we've talked the book of uh, the, the, yeah. We <laughs> talked and talked and talked. We talked about some Jedi and we talked about some Sith and I uh, 
I think we got ourselves an episode here. What do you think, Thumbs? That's great, because I do not have a whole lot of voice left. <laughs> yeah, we've we've been going pretty hard uh, today. Well, let's just uh, run through our plugs real quick for you guys. Again, if you're, if you're looking for more Art of Wargaming, if you're looking for little snippets or little tidbits and a uh, little trivia to kind of go along with this, we have a Facebook and a Instagram where I'm posting memes that kind of have to do with that week's episode. And, of course, our, our player profiles, which is still going. If you've got somebody that you want to submit for a player profile, uh, just hit me up for the the information that you need and send that to art of wargaming podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And uh, then of course you can always uh, catch our sister shows on the rest of the ear of Room network. You can listen to me talk uh, my buddy Tyler talking about whatever nerdy stuff. If you liked this episode, you'll love general nerdery uh, over at general nerdery, or you can listen to Tyler and his friend Danny talk about horror movies over at fried squirms. You can find all of these, as well as ourselves, at uh, earverm.com, which is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. Or you can check out our website, and there will be links at the top, our website being Tau Wargaming, T-A-O Wargaming.com. Absolutely. And uh, in, in, in uh, the next two weeks, you can look forward to an episode about the world of Vegetius, where we're going to be talking about the differences between Prussia and Frederick the Great and the late Roman Empire that we're going to be discussing for uh, his institutions of the Ro- military institutions of the Romans. I'm so excited. Oh my God, we're going to talk ancient history. <laughs> it's going to be fun. This is my jam, son. We're looking forward to it. But uh, until next time, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Sums. Signing out.